Volume 45, Number 8 of the Leah Hona Magazine for August 2021. Welcome to this issue, The Power of the Priesthood. The Savior had divine power and authority, and He shared it, writes President Dallin H. Oaks, First Counselor in the First Presidency. See his article on page 6. President Oaks teaches how the priesthood authority in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints differs from that of other churches, and then explains, The ordinances of salvation and exaltation are fundamental in God's great plan for His children. President Oaks concludes by inviting us to look for the great day of the Lord to come. He asks, If we knew that we would meet the Lord tomorrow, through our death or through His coming, what would we do today? Other articles that will help your Come Follow Me study of the Doctrine and Covenants are on pages 26-33. through 33. Another important theme in this issue is mental health and emotional resiliency. We can better face our trials as we support each other through hard times and learn to choose mindsets that help us endure well. Several articles are intended to teach us how to do just that. See pages 12, 16, 18, and 20. Let us know if you find these and other articles in this issue helpful and inspiring. You can reach us by emailing leahona at churchofjesuschrist.org. Sincerely, Ryan Carr, Leahona Assistant Managing Editor. Read by Wes Nelson. The Church is Here, Riga, Latvia. Riga, the national capital of Latvia, is a port just upriver from the mouth of the Daugava River. The first branch of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in Latvia was organized in Riga in 1993. Today, Riga is the headquarters of the Baltic Mission. The church in Latvia has 1,272 members, five congregations, and one mission. Time together. Something as simple as a stroll through town can provide wholesome recreation. There is no substitute for spending time together, says Alexander Samogulin of Riga, who enjoys being with his wife Svetlana and their children. Read by Wes Nelson. Contents Authority, Ordinances, and Preparation by President Dallin H. Oaks Gospel Basics The priesthood is God's power. Strive to Be A Pattern for Growth and Mental and Emotional Wellness by Sheldon Martin How Do I Support a Child Who Is Feeling Depressed? by Heather Nelson Ministering Principles Ministering with Mental Health in Mind Building a Spiritual and Temporal Refuge by Marilee Brown Boyack For Parents, Teaching About the Priesthood and Preparedness Aging Faithfully, Goals for the Young at Heart by Christy Monson Portraits of Faith, Gregorio Gutierrez Fernandez, Santa Cruz, Bolivia Latter-day Saint Voices Come Follow Me, Early Women of the Restoration From Sewing Society to Relief Society by Patricia Lemon Spilsbury. Doctrine and Covenants 84-93 Prophecy of War, Prescription for Peace by Elder Matthew S. Holland Doctrine and Covenants Section 88 The Light of Christ by J. Ward Moody Young Adults, Strengthening My Relationship with Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ by Shaquille Wardley Herbert Finding Spiritual Support After Joining the Church Alone by Marcus Grant.
More for you. Area Pages Insert Digital Only Articles The following articles can be found in this month's issue in the Gospel Library. How Can I Progress on the Covenant Path While I'm Single? by Marjorie Cornelis Why I Keep the Word of Wisdom When I'm Repeatedly Faced with Temptation by Nicole Naren What Infertility as a Single Woman Taught Me About God's Eternal Promises by Lara Depp The Savior's Model of Self-Care by Julie D'Azevedo Hanks End of Contents Read by Wes Nelson Authority, Ordinances, and Preparation by President Dallin H. Oaks, First Counselor in the First Presidency. The Ordinances of Salvation and Exaltation are fundamental in God's great plan for and preparation of His children. The Scriptures are rich in references to the Second Coming, an event eagerly awaited by the righteous and dreaded or denied by the wicked. Let the cry go forth among all people, the Lord warned at the outset of the restoration, Behold and lo, the bridegroom cometh. Prepare yourselves for the great day of the Lord. Doctrine and Covenants, section 133, verse 10. See also section 34, verse 6. Preparing to meet God. We are living in the prophesied time when peace shall be taken from the earth. Doctrine and Covenants, section 1, verse 35. When all things shall be in commotion, men's hearts shall fail them. Doctrine and Covenants, section 88, verse 91. We are surrounded by challenges on all sides, but with faith in God, we trust in the blessings He has promised those who keep His commandments and prepare. As part of our preparation to meet Him, the Lord has commanded, Stand ye in holy places, and be not moved, until the day of the Lord come. For behold, it cometh quickly. Doctrine and Covenants, section 87, verse 8. What are those holy places? Surely they include the temple, attended by those who keep their covenants faithfully. Surely they include places of service by faithful missionaries and others, called by priesthood authority. As we stand in holy places, we exercise and are subject to priesthood authority, and we seek the ordinances required for exaltation and eternal life. Priesthood Authority in the Restored Church Thirty years ago, I had an experience with how priesthood authority in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints differs from other kinds of authority. The wife of a prominent Protestant minister came to my office. For many years, she and her husband had served the Lord with great diligence in a Christian ministry. Now she wanted to join the restored church, but she had a reservation. She came to ask me why she had to be baptized when she had already been baptized a Christian by her minister husband, who had baptized many people in his congregation. She asked, are you willing to tell me that my husband didn't have any authority to baptize all those people he baptized? The Spirit came to my aid as we pray for in these situations. No, I am sure your husband had authority for those baptisms, I replied. He had all the authority his church, his congregation, and the laws of the land could give him. 
He used his authority in baptizing, performing marriages, employing persons for physical needs of his church building, and appointing persons to participate in its worship services. We don't question that authority, but we want you to know of a different kind of authority, the power God delegates to mortals. I explained that what causes us to require baptism for persons converted to the restored Church of Jesus Christ is the need for baptism by the divine authority Jesus gave to Peter and other apostles. With that authority, he told them whatsoever they bound on earth would be bound in heaven. See Matthew chapter 16, verse 19, chapter 18, verse 18. In other words, it would be valid and effective beyond the veil of death to satisfy the requirements of heaven. I testified to her that this authority had been restored and now exists only in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Sometime later, both the woman and her husband were baptized. I have known them for many years as faithful members. The importance of authority is evident in many scriptural accounts of our Savior's earthly ministry. We read that the people he taught were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. See also Mark chapter 1, verse 22. Luke chapter 4, verse 32. In a synagogue they were amazed that with authority commandeth he even the unclean spirits, and they do obey him. Mark chapter 1, verse 27. See also Luke chapter 4, verse 36. Jesus told the questioning scribes that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Mark chapter 2, verse 10. See also Luke chapter 5, verse 24. Later the chief priests and elders asked him by what authority he acted. See Matthew chapter 21, verses 23 through 27, and Mark chapter 11, verses 27 through 33. They did not meet his requirement for an answer, but what he later said and did reveals his answer. What he called his apostles, he ordained them. John chapter 15, verse 16, that he might send them forth to preach, and to have power to heal sicknesses, and to cast out devils. Mark chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. See also Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, Luke chapter 9, verse 1, and Acts chapter 8, verses 18 and 19. When he called the seventy, he gave them power. Luke chapter 10, verse 19. The Savior had divine power and authority, and he shared it. As John the Baptist said, The Father hath given all things into his hand. John chapter 3, verse 35. The Roll of Ordinances. The most familiar examples of the exercise of priesthood authority involve ordinances. Ordinances and priesthood are inseparable. An ordinance is a sacred act of eternal significance, done with priesthood authority. It accompanies the making of covenants and the promising of blessings. Ordinances of the restored Church of Jesus Christ include baptism, the partaking of the sacrament, the most frequent ordinance in the Church, 
and the ordinances of the temple, including marriage for time and all eternity, and the gift of what we call the endowment, which consists of knowledge, covenants, and promised blessings. The requirement of ordinances is God-given and has eternal effect. There is a law irrevocably decreed in heaven before the foundations of this world upon which all blessings are predicated. Doctrine and Covenants, section 130, verse 20. And all who will have a blessing at the Lord's hands shall abide the law which was appointed for that blessing and the conditions thereof as were instituted from before the foundation of the world. Doctrine and Covenants, section 132, verse 5. The ordinances of salvation and exaltation are fundamental in God's great plan for His children. Jesus taught that salvation in the kingdom of God comes from being born of water and of the Spirit. John chapter 3, verse 5. Exaltation, eternal life, the kind and quality of life that Heavenly Father and His beloved Son live, comes from the higher covenants and ordinances of the temple. See Doctrine and Covenants, section 14, verse 7, section 84, verse 38, section 88, verse 107, section 132, verses 16 and 17, and verses 20 and 21. Our prophet, President Russell M. Nelson, has taught, This life is the time to prepare for salvation and exaltation. In God's eternal plan, salvation is an individual matter. Exaltation is a family matter, preparing to meet the Lord. In modern revelation, we are told that he who fears the Lord will be looking forth for the great day of the Lord to come, even for the signs of the coming of the Son of Man. Doctrine and Covenants, section 45, verse 39. In the final period before the end of his mortal ministry, Jesus spoke of his second coming, he described the tribulations that would come first and the importance, notwithstanding those tribulations, of being ready. Matthew chapter 24, verse 44. Then he declared, Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Matthew chapter 24, verse 46. See also Luke chapter 12 verses 37 and 43. President Nelson has taught, we are just building up to the climax of this last dispensation when the Savior's second coming becomes a reality. The signs of that second coming are all around us and seem to be increasing in frequency and intensity. Worldwide, we are experiencing or learning of earthquakes, famines, typhoons, floods, pestilences, and armed conflicts. But not all these signs are threatening. A positive sign of the times is the prophesied gathering of Israel, which President Nelson has declared is the most important thing taking place on earth today. As this gathering proceeds, we are establishing stakes for a defense and for a refuge from the storm and from wrath when it shall be poured out without mixture upon the whole earth. Doctrine and Covenants, section 115, verse 6. We are also accelerating the building of temples 
where the faithful can gather in their own homelands to make the covenants that allow them to be eligible for eternal life. See Doctrine and Covenants, section 84, verses 19 through 22, section 131, verses 1 through 3. As the Book of Mormon teaches, this life is the time for men to prepare to meet God. Alma chapter 34, verse 32. Are we preparing? What if the day of his coming were tomorrow? If we knew that we would meet the Lord tomorrow, through our death or through his coming, what would we do today? What confessions would we make? What practices would we discontinue? What forgiveness would we extend? What ordinances would we seek? What additional things would we do to fulfill our covenants? If we could do those things then, why not now? If our lamps of preparation are drawn down, let us start immediately to replenish them. End of the article Authority, Ordinances, and Preparation Read by Dwayne Case Gospel Basics The Priesthood is God's Power God blesses us through the power of the priesthood. Priesthood blessings are available to everyone. The priesthood is the power of God. He uses this power to bless all of His children and to help them return to live with Him. God has given priesthood power to His children on earth. With this power, priesthood leaders can lead the church, and priesthood holders can perform sacred ordinances, like baptism, that help us come closer to God. Every man and woman who worthily receives priesthood ordinances and keeps the covenants has access to the power of God. Priesthood power was given to Joseph Smith. When Jesus Christ was on the earth, he led his church with priesthood power. He also gave this power to his apostles. In the centuries after they died, many members fell away from the church. They incorrectly changed the gospel and the way the church worked. The priesthood of God was no longer on the earth. In 1829, Jesus sent John the Baptist and the apostles Peter, James, and John to give Joseph Smith the priesthood. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the only organization on earth with this authority from God. Keys of the Priesthood Priesthood keys are the authority to direct the use of the priesthood, such as giving permission to perform ordinances. Jesus Christ holds all the keys of the priesthood. The president of the church is the only person on earth who can use priesthood keys to direct the whole church. Under his direction, others can use certain keys to do God's work. Leaders, such as bishops and stake presidents, use priesthood keys to lead in their wards and stakes. Because callings to serve come from leaders with priesthood keys, men and women who serve in callings exercise priesthood authority as they do their duties. Melchizedek Priesthood and Aaronic Priesthood The priesthood has two parts, the Melchizedek Priesthood 
and the Aaronic Priesthood. Through the Melchizedek Priesthood, church leaders direct all the spiritual work of the church, such as missionary and temple work. The Aaronic Priesthood functions under the authority of the Melchizedek Priesthood. It is used to perform ordinances, such as baptism and the sacrament. Blessings of the Priesthood Through covenants and ordinances, God makes priesthood blessings available to all of His children. These blessings include baptism, the gift of the Holy Ghost, the sacrament, and temple ordinances. Men and women who are endowed in the temple receive a gift of God's priesthood power through their covenants. We can also receive priesthood blessings of healing, comfort, and guidance. What do the scriptures say about the priesthood? The priesthood that existed in ancient days is the same that exists now. Priesthood keys help make sure that we accomplish the Lord's work in an orderly way. Men who hold the priesthood can use it only upon the principles of righteousness. Some of the duties of those who hold the priesthood are described in Doctrine and Covenants, section 20, verses 38 through 67. Words to Remember We hope you have enjoyed learning about the priesthood. Here are some other important gospel terms that you can learn about in this issue. Exaltation To live with Heavenly Father and our families forever in the celestial kingdom. See page 7. Ordinance A sacred act done by the authority of the priesthood, such as baptism, confirmation, the sacrament, and temple ordinances. See pages 8 and 26. Second Coming When Jesus Christ Comes to the Earth in Glory See page 7. End of the article The Priesthood is God's Power Read by Van Farnworth Strive to Be A Pattern for Growth in Mental and Emotional Wellness the pattern of growth outlined in the Children and Youth Program can help all of us as we strive to become more like the Savior. By Sheldon Martin, Manager of Special Programs, Priesthood and Family Department. Real growth occurs when we strive to grow in a variety of areas. We learn that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Luke chapter 2, verse 52. We know little about this period of the Master's life, but from this verse we know that He increased. He grew, intellectually, physically, spiritually, and socially. Many studies suggest that striving to grow in a variety of areas in our life supports healthy emotional and mental wellness. Growth and eternal potential are themes of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. Our potential to become like Heavenly Father is central to the Gospel and helps us feel love, hope, and gratitude. President Dallin H. Oaks, first counselor in the First Presidency, taught, The final judgment is not just an evaluation of a sum total of good and evil acts, what we have done. It is an acknowledgment of the final effect of our acts and thoughts, what we have become. 
It is not enough for anyone just to go through the motions. The commandments, ordinances, and covenants of the gospel are not a list of deposits required to be made in some heavenly account. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a plan that shows us how to become what our Heavenly Father desires us to become. A Pattern for Growth Children and youth have been invited to follow the pattern of discovering what they need to work on, planning how they will do it, acting on their plan in faith, and reflecting on what they have learned. This pattern can help all of us as we strive to grow and become more like the Savior. For example, Alma taught that, If ye can no more than desire to believe, let this desire work in you. Alma chapter 32 verse 27 As we nurture that desire, it grows into what Amulek called faith unto repentance. Alma chapter 34 verse 16 The desire of which Alma speaks and the faith of which Amulek testifies do not remain stagnant. Our desire and faith in Jesus Christ lead us to truly repent, and this repentance process leads us to grow continually. President Russell M. Nelson explained, Nothing is more liberating, more ennobling, or more crucial to our individual progression than is a regular daily focus on repentance. Repentance is not an event. It is a process. It is the key to happiness and peace of mind when coupled with faith, Repentance opens our access to the power of the atonement of Jesus Christ. Growth requires commitment. Just as repentance requires continuous work and commitment, real growth occurs when we strive to offer our whole souls in a variety of areas. We each have spiritual gifts that can be used to build the kingdom of God. In our pursuit of becoming a new creature, we are invited to serve the Lord with all our heart, might, mind, and strength. As we strive to grow in a variety of areas, we build resilience and strengthen our faith in Jesus Christ, which will help us meet life's challenges. Children and youth and all of us who set simple short-term goals to grow spiritually, socially, physically, and intellectually can experience greater emotional and mental wellness. These principles are beyond self-help concepts. They are a healthy approach to striving to become disciples of Jesus Christ so that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is, that we may have this hope that we may be purified even as He is pure. Moroni chapter 7, verse 48 Growth Requires Patience and Diligence as we strive to grow and move forward, we should remember that it is not requisite that we should run faster than we have strength. We strive to be diligent, and when we fall, we strive to rise again. Personal growth requires patience. When Jesus healed a blind man, the blind man first saw men as trees, walking. Jesus put his hands again upon his eyes, and he was restored, and saw every man clearly. Mark chapter 8, verses 24 to 25. Healing and growth, whether physical, emotional, or mental, can come in stages and may not happen quickly. Growth requires us to use all resources available to us. There is not a simple cure-all for emotional and mental wellness. 
We will experience stress and turmoil because we live in a fallen world with a fallen body. Additionally, many contributing factors may lead to a diagnosis of mental illness. Regardless of our mental and emotional well-being, focusing on growth is healthier than obsessing about our shortcomings. Elder Dieter F. Uchtdorf of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles taught, The church is not an automobile showroom, a place to put ourselves on display so that others can admire our spirituality, capacity, or prosperity. It is more like a service center where vehicles in need of repair come for maintenance and rehabilitation. Increasing our spirituality is an important part of mental and emotional well-being, but there is often more we can do, and the Lord expects us to use all of the tools He has put at our disposal. There has sometimes been a stigma attached to using additional resources as we work to improve our mental and emotional wellness, but church leaders have taught that these resources can be vital. Sister Reina I. Aberto, second counselor in the Relief Society General Presidency, taught, Like any part of the body, the brain is subject to illnesses, trauma, and chemical imbalances. When our minds are suffering, it is appropriate to seek help from God, from those around us, and from medical and mental health professionals. We have a responsibility to do all things that lie in our power, and then may we stand still with the utmost assurance to see the salvation of God and for His arm to be revealed. Doctrine and Covenants, section 123, verse 17. We may not see His hand in the way we expect or desire, but those who trust in Him can see it. The Savior's Example of Growth The greatest example of growth is our Savior, Jesus Christ. The Scriptures teach that he received not of the fullness at the first, but received grace for grace. And he received not of the fullness at first, but continued from grace to grace until he received a fullness. And thus he was called the Son of God, because he received not of the fullness at the first. Doctrine and Covenants, section 93, verses 12 to 14. As we strive to grow and progress, we too can receive grace for grace. When life becomes overwhelming, we may think that God has abandoned us. However, we can find peace and comfort in the truth that God the Father and our Savior Jesus Christ are aware of us and know how to help us through our trials. Believing in Jesus Christ does not mean that mortal challenges will cease to exist, but we do believe that the Lord can give us strength to meet our challenges as we strive to be more like Him. How can I strive to grow? The following ideas may be helpful as you strive to focus on growth in your life. Set goals that are simple, measurable, and focus on real growth. For example, instead of setting up an elaborate scripture study plan for the next six months, you might choose to begin by reading the scripture of the day on the Gospel Living app. Validate and highlight any movement you make toward growth. Even small steps are worth celebrating. The point is to keep moving and keep striving. Don't dwell on mistakes or failures. You aren't perfect, and you aren't expected to be perfect yet. Acknowledge that you can do better, set another goal, and then work toward it. Exercise faith in Jesus Christ. 
He knows how to help you, and you will feel His love as you strive to become more like Him. End of the article, Strive to Be, A Pattern for Growth and Mental and Emotional Wellness By Sheldon Martin, Manager of Special Programs, Priesthood and Family Department Read by Casey Wayman How do I support a child who is feeling depressed? When your child is feeling discouraged, how can you help? By Heather Nelson Licensed Clinical Social Worker, and Derek Willis Hagee, Family Services. Everyone feels sad or discouraged at times. As a parent, you may see changes in your child's behavior without fully understanding the reason why. Here are some things to watch for and ways to help your child. Spotting Potential Concerns If your child is more angry or sad for more than two weeks, you may wonder if he or she is experiencing depression. Depression may look different for children and youth than it does for adults. When your child is feeling down or depressed, symptoms may include significant changes in behavior, grades in school drastically dropping, like going from A's to F's, changes in friend groups, often moving to friends who are not positive, boredom, Loss of interest in activities. Changes in sleeping habits, including too much or too little sleep. Trouble focusing. Fatigue. Not caring about the future. Complaining of aches and pains with no physical source. Comments or thoughts about death or suicide. Changes in eating. When a child becomes depressed, parents may feel like it's their fault or that they've done something wrong. Remember that depression doesn't always start because of what someone did, and it can't be stopped by telling the child to stop feeling depressed. Depression in children often comes from feeling overwhelmed. As a parent, do your best to remain calm and focus on listening and validating. You can emotionally coach your child and patiently guide him or her to develop coping skills to help manage strong emotions. How to help your child. Build a stronger parent-child bond. If you notice some of the symptoms listed earlier, help your child feel supported and loved. Look for ways to improve the bond with your child. This can help your child to better cope with stressful situations. Some ways to develop the parent-child bond include one-on-one -on -one time, talking and listening, reassuring your child things will get better, offering praise, pointing out strengths, expressions of love, serving your child. Seek support from others. Although you are responsible to help your child, don't try to go it alone. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles has said, If you had appendicitis, God would expect you to seek a priesthood blessing and get the best medical care available. So too with emotional disorders. Our Father in Heaven expects us to use all of the marvelous gifts He has provided in this glorious dispensation. Seek help from Heavenly Father through prayer as well as support from family and friends, church leaders, 
including Aaronic priesthood or young women leaders, and potentially a trained mental health professional. If you decide to seek professional help, choose a therapist who has experience working with children and can understand the concerns you have for your child. It's important for you to engage in treatment with your child and in many cases, attend therapy with him or her. Your child's doctor is another resource you can turn to for help. The doctor can prescribe medicine when it is needed to manage the symptoms of depression. Add structure to life. It's important for your child to have structure. If your child knows what to expect and when, he or she will feel more stable and will be more capable of adapting. Here are some ways to add structure to your child's day or week. Decide on a regular bedtime. Get up at the same time every day. Share the schedule for the day with them. Limit screen time. Be physically active. Going for a family walk is great. Engage in spiritual growth together, including regular gospel study and family prayer. Eat meals together as a family every day. Encourage your child to join in family activities like playing a game or watching a movie together. It can also be helpful to model self-care and teach your child ways that he or she can take time for self-care. You may choose to exercise or do mindfulness activities together with your child or as a family. Remember, there can be a genetic link with depression, and so your own struggles may cause you to feel discouraged as you address your child's depression. If you have symptoms of depression, it is important to manage those symptoms and seek professional help if you begin to feel overwhelmed. If you aren't caring for yourself, you will find it more difficult to support your child in his or her struggles. Read by April Johnson Ministering Principles Ministering with mental health in mind. We can share the Savior's love with those who live with mental and emotional health challenges. A young mother found herself struggling with depression. She worked with doctors to get her medication just right, but the process took time. One day was especially difficult, and she made an urgent appointment with her doctor. They decided together she should be admitted to the hospital. Ward members came together to make visits, care for her children, and provide help with meals. During the weeks and months afterward, the woman's depression made reaching out for help difficult, so ward members learned to take the initiative in offering support. Later, the sister related that help came at inspired moments, just when it was most needed. She mentioned that one of the most valuable things that came from that time was knowing that her sisters and brothers cared about her and were there to support her. She felt the love of the Savior through the service of her ward members. She learned for herself that he was aware of her and her struggles, and that with his help she could endure her challenges with faith. Ideas for Ministering Mental and emotional health issues are common even if an emergency hospitalization isn't going to be necessary for many. These challenges are likely to be found among members in every ward or branch. They can affect people of all nationalities and all walks of life. As you minister, 
you will likely encounter someone with social or emotional difficulties. When you do, please consider the advice that President Henry B. Eyring, second counselor in the First Presidency, received. When you meet someone, treat them as if they were in serious trouble, and you will be right more than half the time. A mental, social, or emotional issue can be one reason someone may be struggling. Here are some ideas of how to minister. 1. Listen to learn. Allow the person to share as much or as little information as he or she is comfortable communicating. You are supporting him or her just by listening. You may receive inspiration about ways to provide comfort. For more ideas, see 5 Things Good Listeners Do. Ensign or Leahona. June 2018, pages 6 through 9. 2. Demonstrate compassion. Try to begin and end every interaction with a sincere expression of love and care for the person. For more ideas, see Reach Out in Compassion. Ensign or Leahona, July 2018, pages 6 through 9. 3. Provide support. Recovery from social or emotional difficulties is not simple and not easy. At times, he or she may wish for space or may ask for help. Provide support in the time and way the person is able to accept it. For more ideas, see Developing the Empathy to Minister. Ensign or Leahona, February 2019, pages 8 through 11. 4. Counsel with leaders. You are not alone. Seek support from leaders and others. With permission, share the struggling person's needs and possible ways others may be of service. For more ideas, see Getting Help to Help Others. Ensign or Leahona, October 2018, pages 6 through 9. Additional resources. Website for finding a suicide helpline in your country, befrienders.org. Emotional Resilience for Self-Reliance, 2020. churchofjesuschrist.org slash self-reliance. Seek to mourn with those who mourn. mentalhealth.churchofjesuschrist.org. I am not a mental health professional, but I want to help. What can I do? mentalhealth.churchofjesuschrist.org How can I better understand what to avoid saying or doing? mentalhealth.churchofjesuschrist.org How can I help individuals, including those working through mental health challenges, Feel welcomed and included at church. mentalhealth.churchofjesuschrist.org More on ministering. The articles at left can be found at ministering.churchofjesuschrist.org Note. If the person to whom you are ministering is a danger to self or others, it may be necessary to involve appropriate authorities to help.
Note. 1. Henry B. Eyring, In the Strength of the Lord, Ensign or Leahona, May 2004, page 16. End of the article. Ministering Principles. Ministering with Mental Health in Mind. Read by Kristen Hawkins. Building a Spiritual and Temporal Refuge. The pandemic and related shortages, shutdowns, and economic upheaval caused many of us to wonder, how can I be better prepared for the future? By Marilee Brown Boyack. We have been counseled to build a refuge for our families, both physically and spiritually. Elder David A. Bednar of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles has taught, as disciples of the Savior, we are commanded to prepare every needful thing. Doctrine and Covenants, section 88, verse 119. He further taught, We also are promised that if ye are prepared, ye shall not fear. Doctrine and Covenants, section 38, verse 30. Repeated admonitions to prepare have been proclaimed by leaders of the church for decades. In order to prepare, we can turn to guidance from the Lord President Russell M. Nelson stated, For decades, the Lord's prophets have urged us to store food, water, and financial reserves for a time of need. I urge you to take steps to be temporally prepared, but I am even more concerned about your spiritual and emotional preparation. We know that the last days will not be for the faint of heart. The world will experience even more upheaval and the faithful will be tested. President Nelson said, Of course we can store our own reserves of food, water, and savings, but equally crucial is our need to fill our personal, spiritual storehouses with faith, truth, and testimony. It will be critical that each of us be prepared not only temporally and physically for what is to come, but also spiritually. These have striking parallels in our preparations. Water and living water. Physically, one of our key needs is to have fresh drinking water stored. For many people, droughts, contaminated water sources, and other water-related problems have caused grave concern. Where possible, it is good to have a supply of water that can last at least a few days until access to drinkable water is restored. Individuals need about four liters per day for drinking and sanitation. Spiritually, we also need a regular supply of the living water from our Savior, Jesus Christ. See John chapter 4, verse 10. It was telling that the main message given by our prophet when the pandemic struck was to hear him, to hear Jesus Christ through his spirit and his teachings. President Nelson said, in the past several weeks, most of us have experienced disruptions in our personal lives. Earthquakes, fires, floods, plagues, and their aftermaths have disrupted routines and caused shortages of food, staples, and savings. As we seek to be disciples of Jesus Christ, our efforts to hear Him need to be ever more intentional. It takes conscious and consistent effort to fill our daily lives with his words, his teachings, 
his truths. I renew my plea for you to do whatever it takes to increase your spiritual capacity to receive personal revelation. Doing so will help you know how to move ahead with your life, what to do during times of crisis, and how to discern and avoid the temptations and deceptions of the adversary. The prophet has repeatedly asked us to increase our ability to receive revelation. It is critical for each of us to make a deep spiritual effort to access the living water every day so we can hear, receive, and act on personal revelation. Food and spiritual nourishment. Having an adequate supply of food is also crucial to survive in an emergency. Whether the situation be job loss, natural disasters, or other crises, food storage can help us weather trials. Prophets have encouraged us to put aside food as we are able. Starting with a few weeks supply can be an important first step in building enough food storage to provide for our families in times of need. We must also be prepared by making spiritual nourishment a part of our everyday life. President Nelson taught, our ultimate quest in life is to prepare to meet our maker. We do this by striving daily to become more like our Savior Jesus Christ. And we do that as we repent daily and receive his cleansing, healing, and strengthening power. Then we can feel enduring peace and joy, even during turbulent times. The parable of the ten virgins teaches this principle clearly. President Dallin H. Oaks, first counselor in the first presidency, stated, The arithmetic of this parable is chilling. The ten virgins obviously represent members of Christ's church, for all were invited to the wedding feast, and all knew what was required to be admitted when the bridegroom came, but only half were ready when he came. As the Book of Mormon teaches, this life is the time for men to prepare to meet God. Alma chapter 34 verse 32. Are we preparing? We cannot wait until the Lord comes to nourish ourselves spiritually. Communication and Prayer In a crisis, communication is a critical need. During power outages or other disasters, cell phone towers quickly become overwhelmed and the ability to communicate is seriously impacted. Having a communication plan for family and ward members is an important preparation. How will we reach our family members if our phones don't work or if we can't reach them physically? Having a plan in place will help family members know what to do to be able to communicate. Our Father in Heaven has established His communication plan by encouraging regular prayer. What an honor it is to talk to our Heavenly Father whenever and wherever we want. Be faithful, the Savior tells us, praying always, having your lamps trimmed and burning and oil with you, that you may be ready at the coming of the Bridegroom. Doctrine and Covenants, section 33. Verse 17, through our efforts to pray with sincerity, we will become comfortable talking with and receiving guidance from our Father in heaven 
and that will provide a critical connection to guide us and our families in times of need. Shelter and Standing in Holy Places Most of us were asked to shelter in place during the pandemic. We learned firsthand that having safe shelter with adequate supplies is crucial to being prepared. It is also wise to seek out alternate shelters in case our homes become unsafe due to natural disasters or other circumstances that require us to leave. Similarly, we are encouraged to shelter in the gospel. President Oaks taught, Are we following the Lord's command, Stand ye in holy places, and be not moved, until the day of the Lord come, for behold, it cometh quickly. Doctrine and Covenants, section 87, verse 8. What are those holy places? Surely they include the temple and its covenants faithfully kept. Surely they include a home where children are treasured and parents are respected. Surely the holy places include our posts of duty assigned by priesthood authority, including missions and callings faithfully fulfilled. Members of the church felt the loss when we were not able to meet together as congregations or to serve in the temple. But we also learned how critical it was to establish our homes as holy places. Attending church meetings, serving in the temple, and having our homes be sanctuaries of faith will strengthen us and our families as we prepare for the second coming. First Aid and Repentance Good first aid supplies and skills are essential in being temporally prepared. The whole world was looking for good masks and medical supplies during the pandemic. Storing medicine and medical supplies is an important part of being prepared for the natural disasters and other trials that will come. Similarly, spiritual first aid is essential. The Lord has provided a way for us to be healed. Repentance offers us the opportunity to make things right in our behavior and to have the balm of Jesus Christ and his atonement cleanse us. Elder Hans T. Boom of the Seventy stated, Some of us are wounded, but the first aid kit of the Lord has bandages big enough to cover all of our wounds. Regular repentance will help refine us in preparation for what is to come. As we consistently repent, we will become stronger, better, and more in tune with the Lord. President Nelson taught, When Jesus asks you and me to repent, he is inviting us to change our mind, our knowledge, our spirit. Nothing is more liberating, more ennobling, or more crucial to our individual progression than is a regular daily focus on repentance. When coupled with faith, repentance opens our access to the power of the atonement of Jesus Christ. Mental Strength and Testimony Many people struggled with mental health during the pandemic. Part of our preparation includes having practices in place to promote good mental health. Many of us were tested as the trials extended and grew over time. Church leaders have encouraged us to make mental health and strength part of our preparedness. 
spiritually. We must focus on strengthening our testimonies so they will withstand the trials that will come to all the faithful. President Russell M. Nelson stated, Our Savior and Redeemer, Jesus Christ, will perform some of His mightiest works between now and when He comes again. We will see miraculous indications that God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, preside over this church in majesty and glory, but in coming days, it will not be possible to survive spiritually without the guiding, directing, comforting, and constant influence of the Holy Ghost. As the Savior taught, each of us must build our spiritual house upon the rock, which means living in obedience to his teachings, so that we will have a firm foundation. See 3 Nephi chapter 14, verses 24 and 25. This will be necessary to survive the spiritual buffetings that are sure to come. As we work to prepare ourselves and the world for the second coming of Jesus Christ, we must prepare our families temporally for what has been foretold concerning those days. Natural disasters, societal upheavals, and political unrest all await us as foretold by our prophets. These events will require careful preparation to physically protect ourselves and our families. Likewise, we must protect ourselves and our families from the evils that would destroy us, relying on personal revelation, practicing regular habits of spiritual nourishment, including prayer and repentance, and standing in holy places will help us build testimonies that are strong and immovable. Then we may rest assured in the Lord's promise that if we are prepared, both temporally and spiritually, we need not fear. See Doctrine and Covenants, section 38, verse 30. The author lives in Utah, USA. Read by Jane Wise. Early Women of the Restoration From Sewing Society to Relief Society by Patricia Lemon Spilsbury, Church History Department What could Margaret Cook, a single sister of limited means, do to help contribute to the building of the Nauvoo Temple? In Nauvoo, during the early 1840s, the saints were poor and goods were scarce. Of necessity, they were all involved in building homes and businesses. Yet their primary interest was in building the Nauvoo Temple. Church leaders frequently called upon saints in the area and abroad to assist with labor and materials. In the church newspaper, Times and Seasons, the saints were taught that the temple is to be built by tithing and consecration, and everyone is at liberty to consecrate all they find in their hearts so to do, whether it be money or whatever he may be blessed with. Church leaders also urged saints to donate bedding, socks, mittens, shoes, clothing of every description, and store goods for the comfort of the laborers this winter. On March 1, 1842, Margaret Cook visited Sarah Kimball to do some sewing for her. They discussed the recent appeals for support of the temple laborers. Margaret's means were meager. 
but her sewing skill could be useful to those needing clothing. If fabric could be made available, Margaret said she would be pleased to contribute needlework. Sarah said she would provide the material, and as they continued conversing, they wondered if others might want to help as well. They spoke with friends about organizing a sewing society. This conversation, prompted by Margaret and Sarah acting on inspiration, led to further interactions with others, including the prophet Joseph Smith. In response, the Lord told his prophet that he had something better for the women and inspired Joseph to organize them under the pattern of the priesthood. This laid the revelatory foundation of what we know today as Relief Society, one of the world's oldest and largest women's service organizations. Continue reading in this issue in the Gospel Library to learn how Sarah and Margaret's simple conversation led to the Prophet Joseph Smith organizing the Relief Society. End of the article. Read by Rena Nelson. Doctrine and Covenants, Section 84 Receiving Godly Power In the ordinances of the Melchizedek Priesthood, the power of godliness is manifest. Activity Materials needed Pencil, a piece of paper with two columns labeled Name and Plan for Next or Needful Ordinance. Instructions List each family member and consider what will help them prepare for their next ordinance, including the sacrament. For example, parents might have a child approaching baptismal age, or teens might have an older sibling preparing to receive temple ordinances. You could complete this activity together for home evening and create specific plans to help each other move along the covenant path. How to progress on the covenant path The priesthood ordinances we receive are more than a checklist. President Tad R. Callister, former Sunday School General President, taught that each unleashes a godly power in our lives. Blessings By receiving the power of priesthood ordinances, we can become more like Jesus Christ. The gift of the Holy Ghost will enlighten our minds and soften our hearts to think and feel more like Him, and connecting more fully with the power of God will help your family overcome even the most difficult trials. Discussion How has participating in ordinances brought power into your life? How can you help members of your family prepare to receive their next ordinance? Read by Wes Nelson Doctrine and Covenants, Section 93 Knowing How and What We Worship In Doctrine and Covenants, Section 93, God reveals certain truths about Jesus Christ so we can know how to worship and know what we worship. This life presents us with many distractions to our true worship of our Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ. Whatever thing a man sets his heart and his trust in most is his God, wrote President Spencer W. Kimball to church members in 1976. And if his God doesn't also happen to be the true and living God of Israel, that man is laboring in idolatry. Following is a brief excerpt from President Kimball's still applicable message. One young man, when called on a mission, replied that he didn't have much talent for that kind of thing. What he was good at was keeping his powerful new automobile in top condition. 
All along, his father had been content with saying, He likes to do things with his hands. That's good enough for him. Good enough for a son of God? This young man didn't realize that the power of his automobile is infinitesimally small in comparison with the power of the sea or of the sun. And there are many suns, all controlled by law and by priesthood. Ultimately, a priesthood power that he could have been developing in the service of the Lord. He settled for a pitiful God, a composite of steel and rubber and shiny chrome. Our assignment is affirmative, to forsake the things of the world as ends in themselves, to leave off idolatry and press forward in faith. When a person begins to catch a vision of the true work, when he begins to see something of eternity in its true perspective, the blessings begin to far outweigh the cost of leaving the world behind. End of Doctrine and Covenants, Section 93 Knowing How and What We Worship Read by Van Farnworth Doctrine and Covenants 87 Prophecy of War, Prescription for Peace By Elder Matthew S. Holland of the Seventy In Revelation, Joseph foresaw the American Civil War and other calamities, but also received divine guidance about how to be at peace. Years ago, at the end of one particularly uplifting and fun-filled day of celebrating Christmas with my family, one of my children looked up at me and asked, How long until Christmas comes again? Even though it is August, many of us of any age can easily imagine and anticipate the kinds of things we might be doing and enjoying this coming December 25th. Despite the real possibility of worldwide weariness over the lingering threat of COVID-19, economic challenges, and political and cultural divisiveness, chances are that most of us will set such things aside and be utterly engaged in a festive and spiritual celebration of the birth of our Savior. But in our current climate, we may sympathize with what was on Joseph Smith's mind on December 25, 1832. Concerns led to revelation. As the year was ending, the prophet was alarmed by the increasing appearances of troubles among the nations. Doctrine and Covenants 87, Section Heading in particular, he noted a global pandemic of cholera and the threat of the immediate dissolution of the United States. In his words, the state of South Carolina, disagreeing with the direction and policies of the federal government, passed ordinances declaring their state a free and independent nation. On December 25, 1832, these concerns opened Joseph's heart and mind to a most remarkable revelation known today as Section 87 of the Doctrine and Covenants. The Revelation foretold key aspects of America's Civil War almost 30 years before it began. It also gave clear spiritual direction for all calamitous times. Observant or Prophetic The Revelation began with a warning. Soon the United States would be plagued with war, starting with the Rebellion of South Carolina. Verse 1. In the ensuing conflict, the southern states shall be divided against the northern states. Verse 3. 
If this were the extent of the prophecy, it might be said that Joseph Smith was just observant, not prophetic. In 1832, it already appeared that South Carolina was in rebellion and that war might be on the way, but there is so much more to this prophecy and the events surrounding it. Joseph was told that this conflict would precede war being poured out upon all nations, verse 3, less than fifty years from the end of the Civil War, the first of two world wars began. All these conflicts would eventually terminate in the death and misery of many souls, verse 1. To this day, more American lives were lost in the Civil War than all other U.S. wars combined. U.S. President Abraham Lincoln himself noted in his second inaugural address, Neither party expected for the war the magnitude or the duration which it has already attained. And however bloody the Civil War was, its death toll pales in comparison to that of the two world wars that followed, where the combined estimates of casualties range anywhere from 70 million to 160 million lives. The South would call on Great Britain for support, verse 3, and after many days, slaves would rise up against their masters and be marshaled for war, verse 4. Both of these things happened. Subject to Ridicule After the 1832 crisis with South Carolina subsided, and before the Civil War began in 1861, Joseph was hardly considered observant. He and others who held to the revelation were ridiculed. Elder Orson Pratt of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles said that from the time he was nineteen years old, he preached this prophecy all across the upper United States. Generally, his teaching was regarded as the height of nonsense, and he was laughed to scorn. He specifically noted reaction in Kansas, where many were certain that if war came, it would surely start there where pro- and anti-slavery forces were often in intense and sometimes bloody conflict. But Elder Pratt declared, Behold and lo, in process of time these events came to pass, as Joseph had prophesied, again establishing the divinity of this work, and giving another proof that God is in this work, and is performing that which he spoke. Section 87 a detailed, unerring, thirty-year-in-advance description of the key events of the Civil War and the nature of the World Wars, among others, that would soon follow, is a powerful witness to the inspired nature and prophetic calling of Joseph Smith. Yet it offers even more. Stand in Holy Places In addition to the wars that would plague the earth in the latter days, Joseph was also told of famines, plagues, earthquakes, thunder, and vivid lightning that the inhabitants of the earth will experience until there is a full end of all nations. Verse 6. To survive all of this, the Lord gives one crystal clear command. Stand ye in holy places, and be not moved until the day of the Lord come. Verse 8. As Elder Ronald A. Rasband of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles recently explained, when we stand in holy places, our righteous homes, our dedicated chapels, the consecrated temples, we feel the Spirit of the Lord with us. We find answers to questions that trouble us or the peace to simply set them aside. That 
is the Spirit in action. These sacred places in the kingdom of God on earth call for our reverence, our respect for others, our best selves in living the gospel, and our hopes to lay aside our fears and seek the healing power of Jesus Christ through his atonement. But, as Elder Asband suggests, even in these tangible places of holiness, how we stand is even more important than where we stand. We must always live in and according to the full light of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we remain immovable in doing so, we will be standing in a holy place wherever we are physically and whatever dangers surround us. A Place of Safety In Kelsey, Texas, in 1942, at the height of World War II, a group of Latter-day Saints approached President Harold B. Lee, who was at the time a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. They asked, Is now the day for us to come up to Zion, where we can be protected from our enemies? President Lee took the question seriously. After pondering, studying, and praying for some time, he concluded, I know now that the place of safety in this world is not in any given place. It doesn't make so much difference where we live but the all-important thing is how we live. And I have found that security can come to Israel only when we keep the commandments, when we live so that we can enjoy the companionship, the direction, the comfort, and the guidance of the Holy Spirit of the Lord, when we are willing to listen to these men whom God has set here to preside as his mouthpieces, and when we obey the counsels of the church. A Guide to Peace Section 87 proved remarkably prescient. Such prophecies should help build our faith in Christ and his chosen servants. We need such faith more than ever, because this revelation is also a sobering reminder about the likely challenges still ahead. As the world continues to hear of wars and rumors of wars, Doctrine and Covenants 45, verse 26, and an array of natural and human disasters, we should all be grateful that on a festive December 25th in 1832, a thoughtful and inspired prophet of God took time to listen to and carefully record the warning words and saving command of Jesus Christ himself. Of such a precious Christmas gift, we might say, in this there is safety, in this there is peace. End of the article, Prophecy of War, Prescription for Peace, by Elder Matthew S. Holland of the Seventy. Read by Scott Christopher. Doctrine and Covenants 88. The Light of Christ, by J. Ward Moody, Ph.D., retired professor of astronomy, Brigham Young University. This is the light of Christ as also he is in the sun, and the light of the sun, and the power thereof by which it was made. Doctrine and Covenants 88, verse 7. Doctrine and Covenants 88, verses 7 through 10, speaks of how truth shineth and is the light of Christ. It says that he is in, or is the light of the sun, moon, and stars, and is the power thereof by which they and the earth were made. Light is one of the most profound and essential entities in all of nature. It transports energy, warmth, 
and information across the cold emptiness of space in a way that science is still trying to comprehend. We know of only two things it could possibly be. A stream of particles called photons, or an energetic wave in a continuous field traversing space. Despite significant efforts spanning hundreds of years, we still cannot say which of these it is, for it seems to be both at once. Of course, our lack of understanding does not keep us from benefiting from light. Light from the sun warms and energizes the earth, making life possible. We live our daily lives only because we can see, and we can see only because light flows into the immensity of space from all things that glow or reflect. Light allows us to know and learn when it touches our eyes. Because of light, we can act, progress, and grow. Take away light, and all would be an icy, unedifying desolation. People in places devoid of light can only stumble in darkness. Small wonder, then, that truth that shineth is equated with the light of Christ. Truth, and with it charity, peace, righteousness, and all good things flow from the Savior to us. Just as physical light gives us understanding of physical things when it touches our eyes, the light of Christ gives us understanding of spiritual things when it touches our hearts. Because the universe is filled with the light of Christ, we can spiritually learn, progress, and grow. Take away the light of Christ, and all would be a meaningless, unedifying desolation. People devoid of this light stumble in the icy darkness of error, having no guidance. These verses of Scripture say that Christ is light and the power by which the bodies in the heavens were made. Astronomers will say that forces from gravity, heat, and atomic interactions created the stars, the sun, earth, and moon, and gave them the natures they have. This is true, but to paraphrase Nobel laureate Richard Feynman, we in science describe how these creative forces work without really knowing why they are what they are. Asking why is asking what the purpose of forces really is. These scriptures tell us that Christ, and with him the work and glory of God in bringing to pass the immortality and eternal life of man, is in the very purpose and reason for having a physical universe in the first place. Physical light serves as a symbol for the spiritual light of Christ. We learn from Doctrine and Covenants 88 verse 11 that there may be a greater connection than just a metaphor. The scripture says, And the light which shineth, which giveth you light, is through him who enlighteneth your eyes, which is the same light that quickeneth your understandings. This seems to suggest that physical light and spiritual light are different manifestations of the same thing. Perhaps the essence of light is difficult for science to understand because scientific inquiry alone does not give a complete picture. It may be that an understanding of light must enfold the very nature of Jesus Christ himself to be complete. When we at last understand the processes through which God enlightens us, then and only then will we understand the nature of physical light as well, and with it the nature of his universe.
End of the article, The Light of Christ, read by Scott Christopher. For Parents Teaching about the priesthood and preparedness. Dear parents, topics for this month include the priesthood, mental health, and spiritual and temporal preparedness. Use this section to get ideas on how you can use this issue to help you recognize specific struggles your children may be facing and to help you teach the gospel of Jesus Christ in your home. Gospel Discussions Priesthood As you teach your children about priesthood and priesthood ordinances, use Gospel Basics on page 10, in addition to President Dallin H. Oaks' article on page 6. Discuss with your children the importance of the priesthood and how the Lord blesses our lives through it. Mental Health the article, How Do I Support a Child Who Is Feeling Depressed, on page 16, talks about some ways you can recognize symptoms of depression in your child and suggest some healthy coping mechanisms. Use this article along with the articles on pages 12 and 18 to help your children deal with mental health challenges. Spiritual and Temporal Refuge The article on page 20 can help your family develop an emergency preparedness plan if you haven't done so already. More important, it also teaches some of the parallels for our spiritual preparedness. Come Follow Me Study Helps. See page 26 for articles to support your family's study of the Doctrine and Covenants this month. Come Follow Me Family Fun. Organize Yourselves. Doctrine and Covenants, Section 88. Our homes can follow this pattern. Organize yourselves, prepare every needful thing, and establish a house, even a house of prayer, a house of fasting, a house of faith, a house of learning, a house of glory, a house of order, a house of God. Doctrine and Covenants, Section 88, Verse 119. Organize means to arrange things in order or to prepare an activity or event. Organize your family in different ways. A. Have them stand in line from oldest to youngest. B. Have them stand in alphabetical order according to their first name. C. Have them line up according to the month of their birth. Discussion. How does the Savior want us to organize ourselves? One in our household jobs, two, in our spiritual study, three, in our worship at church and in the temple. What goals can your family set to create a house of God? In this month's For the Strength of Youth magazine, Goal Setting. Does your teen struggle to make and keep goals? Follow the principles in this article to teach them how to break down their goals into manageable pieces. Mental Illnesses – How You Can Help In this article, three youth share their struggles with anxiety, depression, and eating disorders. Learn with your teen about how to better help and understand these individuals and what to do if you have mental illness. Young Women and the Priesthood – What You Need to Know Read words from the prophet and other church leaders to teach your family about young women's relationship with priesthood power and authority. 
in this month's Friend magazine. Taking care of me. Use this activity to teach your children about taking care of themselves by living the word of wisdom and nourishing their spiritual and emotional health. Scripture study help. Find family-friendly activities for each week of Come Follow Me this month. The Priesthood and Me. Read a message about priesthood blessings from Elder Stephen R. Bangerder of the Seventy. Also look for a page in the For Older Kids section about why the priesthood is important for both girls and boys. Join the Helping Hands team. Read about a boy in Uruguay who helps people in his community. Then do this month's Helping Hands activity. Still hearing Dad's song. Leah is upset when her friend says her dad won't go to heaven because he died by suicide. Read this digital-only story to help you have a conversation with your child about suicide and grief. Read by Jane Wise Aging Faithfully Goals for the Young at Heart by Christy Monson As I learned about the new Children and Youth program, I wanted to be a part of it. When the church began the new children and youth program, I heard our children and grandchildren discuss their plans for goals and lessons. I'm almost 80, but I wanted to be part of this great testimony-building opportunity. My children and grandchildren live all over the country, so we can't all meet in person. Instead, we decided to hold a monthly online meeting. One of the grandchildren would give a lesson and lead a gospel discussion. Afterward, everyone would share their goals and their progress in achieving them. Of course, some goals were personal, and we respected each person's privacy. As I talked with my grandchildren about their goals, I began to think about my own goals. What did I want to accomplish? Here's a list of the goals I came up with, following the subjects and patterns used in the Children and Youth Program. I like to call them my goals for the young at heart. Intellectual. Our Stake Relief Society presidency asked the sisters to memorize The Living Christ. It's long, but I knew I could still memorize that much material, and it seemed like a worthwhile goal. Spiritual. As I serve in the temple, at times I stand for an hour or more at a stairwell and direct patrons to the dressing room. I like to keep my mind busy, so I decided to memorize the old seminary scripture mastery verses for the Book of Mormon. When the temples closed during the COVID-19 pandemic, I continued with this goal anyway. Memorizing gives my mind something to do and fills me with the Spirit. Physical. Our grandchildren's physical goals were based on dancing, volleyball, and surfing, among others. None of those worked for me, so I chose to walk a few miles a day. I find that I'm more alert when I exercise. It's good for my mind and my body. Social. I love keeping in touch with my children and grandchildren. We used to talk on the phone, and still do, but texting is the new way to communicate now. The kids taught me about emojis and short little videos. Several of the grandchildren included learning to cook as a goal. When they came to town, we cooked together. For those who live farther away, we do a video call with each other to discuss recipes and cook in real time. I also love calling the sisters I minister to. During the time of social distancing brought on by the pandemic, chatting on the phone has been a wonderful means of keeping in touch. Sometimes I go to their homes and leave prepackaged treats on their doorsteps with a note expressing my love for them. 
Growing in the Gospel. What a blessing the Children and Youth Program has been for me and my family during the pandemic. Even though I'm home alone day after day, I have my goals. The grandkids continue to develop their talents and grow in the gospel, and I am able to support them. We look forward to our online family meetings and times of sharing. And thanks to the inspiration that came while helping my grandchildren work on their goals, my focus is now more clearly set on my goals, both short-term and eternal. I work and pray every day to let God prevail in my life and the lives of my family members. The author lives in Utah, USA. Learn and grow. Heavenly Father invites us everywhere to feel His love, to learn and grow through education, honorable work, self-reliant service, and patterns of goodness and happiness we find in His restored church. Elder Garrett W. Gong of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Read by Emily Flegel-Gubler. Latter-day Saint Voices Are You Two Sisters? by Carrie Owen, Utah, USA. The young boy's question caught me by surprise and taught me an important lesson. My friend, Lauri Ramate Kyung, is Maori. I'm of English descent. We have contrasting skin tones, eye color, hair color, and height. We couldn't look more different. Yet one day, while Lari and I were serving children at a low-income school, a young Maori boy surprised us with a question. Are you two sisters? he asked. I chuckled, thinking this question was insincere. The boy, however, asked me again. Are you two sisters? Realizing that he was sincere, I paused for a moment and wondered, could this boy not see the clear differences in our appearance and race? Perhaps he did, but thought it made no difference. He eagerly awaited my answer. I told him we were not sisters, which disappointed him, but I added that we often felt like sisters as we served together. He seemed satisfied with that answer and ran off to his table. This boy's sincere question left an indelible mark on me. Why? Because his question spoke a truth to me. That family isn't limited to genetics or appearance. My husband and I have been blessed to adopt two of our children. We love them, and love and service are an essential part of families. After all, we are all children of our one God and Father. Ephesians 4.6 I concluded that this boy must have been watching Laurie and me interacting. Maybe as he saw us helping or hugging each other, he assumed we were sisters. His question reminded me that children are always watching adults and forming opinions by what we say and do and how we treat each other. If this boy could assume we were sisters, then surely children across the world can assume we are all brothers and sisters if only we love and serve one another. Our differences allowed Lari and me to bring diverse strengths and perspectives to our charity work making it more effective. Rather than letting our differences divide us, we use them to do good and in turn form a close friendship. The young boy's question can be a lesson for all of God's children. Read by April Johnson Winning a Debate, Name Withheld I learned that God's love for us is not based on our schooling, employment, or ability to win a debate. 
One day while I was having a heated online discussion about politics, my opinions were mocked because of the type of education I had received in college. I enjoy a good debate, but the personal attack was unwarranted. The comments hurt because they appeared to call into question my personal worth. What made it worse was that the person who made the remark was a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. On reflection, however, I began to see that I too had made cheap personal comments in order to win an argument. I realized that this type of behavior was common in the society around me. I came to learn that failing to recognize dignity in others can cause serious damage, especially in the church. The prophet Alma preached powerfully against envyings and strife and malice and persecutions and pride in the church. Alma chapter 4 verse 9. He saw that such behavior was a great stumbling block to the progress of the church. See Alma chapter 4 verse 10. The encounter made me reflect on my worth in God's eyes. Studying further, I found a quote by Elder Dieter F. Uchtdorf of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. He taught that Heavenly Father loves us because He is filled with an infinite measure of holy, pure, and indescribable love. We are important to God not because of our resume, but because we are His children. I learned that God's love for us does not depend on our schooling, employment, or ability to win a debate. God loves us purely, infinitely, and freely because He is our Father and we are His children. Feeling God's immense love dissolved my enmity. I realized that while it is okay to disagree with others, simply arguing with one another accomplishes nothing but hurt and damage. If Jesus Christ was willing to lay down His life, I know that we can learn to lay down our pride, look past the vanity of the world, and value each other as God does. In His eyes, the way we treat each other says more about us than whether we win an online debate. Read by Rich Gramillion. Tennis Shoes in the Temple by Brian Zimmerman, Utah, USA Would others judge me the way I had unfairly judged another? During a priesthood meeting, I noticed a core member wearing jeans and tennis shoes. I wondered, why would he come to church in casual clothing? Is he being rebellious? Is he hard-hearted? Does he not feel the Spirit in his life? If he truly had a vibrant testimony, Certainly, he would show more respect for sacred meetings and places. A week later, while my wife and I visited our daughter, we wanted to go to the temple with her. As I opened my suitcase, I was shocked to discover that I had forgotten my dress shoes. Because our temple session was starting soon, I didn't have time to buy a new pair, so I decided to wear my tennis shoes. As I was putting on my shoes, I immediately remembered the priesthood meeting. Here I was preparing to go to one of the most sacred places on earth, dressed in tennis shoes. I wondered what others might think. Would they judge me as being rebellious and hard-hearted or lacking the spirit or a vibrant testimony?
I was ashamed of my previous quick, unfair judgment. Who was I to question someone's testimony because of his clothing? I knew nothing of his circumstances. The Savior focused on the spiritual progress of all his father's children. As he reminded Samuel, The Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7 A person's clothing, appearance, race, or gender should make no difference. We are all brothers and sisters. The fact that this brother was attending church should have been the center of my focus. We should always try to wear our best clothes when we go to church or the temple. However, we shouldn't judge others on what they are wearing because we never know their circumstances. All those around us truly have divine potential. We should offer Christ-like love to all of our brothers and sisters, no matter their outward appearance, even if they wear tennis shoes in the temple. End of the article, Tennis Shoes in the Temple, by Brian Zimmerman, Utah, USA. Read by David Shaw. Portraits of Faith Gregorio Gutierrez Fernandez, Santa Cruz, Bolivia My wife and I have physical challenges, but because of our faith, the Lord blesses and strengthens us. He healed me of my sickness. Discover more. Read Gregorio's story at churchofjesuschrist.org forward slash go forward slash 82138. Read by Van Farnworth. Strengthening My Relationship with Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ Building a stronger relationship with them always seemed abstract to me until I tried something new. By Shaquel Wardley Herbert, Church Magazines The older I get, the more I realize how much I rely on relationships. Relationships with friends, family, and even the delivery people who never fail to bring me my latest online order. Bless them. And for years, I knew that the frequent counsel from our church leaders to build relationships with Heavenly Father and the Savior was true and important. But I just couldn't figure out how to actually do that. Earthly relationships with my friends and family involve having conversations, sharing inside jokes, and spending time together. So the thought of having a personal relationship with my Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ, who aren't physically present, always seemed so abstract to me. However, as I was pondering, I realized that everyone's relationship with Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ is personal and unique. So what if I applied some practical approaches that have helped me develop strong relationships with my loved ones here on earth to my relationship with them? That idea was the spark I needed. I decided to put this idea to the test and to reevaluate my relationship with them after 10 days. 10 Ways to Strengthen Relationships As I was pondering ways to come closer to Heavenly Father and the Savior, I researched 10 basic relationship tips that are often given by professionals and combined them with prophetic counsel to give them a spiritual focus. Here are the 10 tips. First, communicate honestly out loud and with real intent through prayer. Second, be a good listener. Third, 
show them appreciation. Fourth, make sacrifices for them. Fifth, learn about them. Sixth, spend quality time with them. Seventh, serve together. Eighth, show them trust and commitment. Ninth, admit when you're wrong. Tenth, learn how they show you love. To start out, I chose to learn about my Heavenly Father and the Savior, number five, to spend quality time with them, number six, and to learn how they offered me love, number ten. First, learning about them. To learn more about them, I focused on studying their character traits. I studied the living Christ, stories of miracles in the Book of Mormon, and general conference talks. I also watched the Church's Bible and Book of Mormon videos to get a visual of the Savior's attributes and how He taught and interacted with others. One attribute of the Savior I studied was His willingness to do the will of the Father. See 3 Nephi chapter 11, verse 11. I can't fathom someone being willing to suffer and die for all the mistakes, sorrow, sins, and pain that everyone will ever face when this individual did no wrong. And yet, someone was willing. He was. I have always had faith in him, but pondering his love and willingness to give up his life for me deepened my faith, my gratitude, and my own willingness to follow him. And his courage inspired me to move forward with faith and hope even while sometimes facing anxiety and fear of the unknown. And then I turned to Heavenly Father's character. I've dealt with perfectionism for most of my life, and I used to imagine him as an angry figure when I disappointed him with my weaknesses and mistakes. But as I have studied more of his nature, I've learned that he is not a merciless being. He is patient and kind and loving. He is always willing to forgive me. He is my biggest supporter and I realize that He really is my Father, and I am His divine child. He loves me completely and simply wants me to return. Learning about the nature of Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ changed my whole perception of how they feel about me and how present they actually are in my life. And I realize that they are not strangers to me. I've known them since the beginning, and they have always known me too. Second, spending time with them. Just as I might set aside time to visit a friend, I made time to spend with Heavenly Father and the Savior every day. I said heartfelt prayers out loud and took time to listen. I played and pondered my favorite hymns. I meditated. And because temples were closed due to COVID-19, I would go on peaceful walks. I usually have a podcast or audiobook sounding in my ear when I go walking. But during these walks, I disconnected from the world. I chose to listen for them. Doing this helped me connect with the Spirit and recognize and ponder the intricate details of the world and my purpose. I realized how much thought Heavenly Father and the Savior put into their creations, including me. I felt a lot of spiritual power come from that quality, quiet time with my Heavenly Father and Savior. I recognized more of my blessings. I found greater gratitude for life overall. I received more assurance in my decisions and I could feel their quiet strength sustaining me. Just as with any other relationship, prioritizing quality time brought us much closer. Third, recognizing how they show me love. We all best receive love in certain ways. I thought about how other people have shown me love and what has affected me the most over the years, and I realized that I've always felt most loved through the meaningful words of others. 
And when I realized this, I also realized that for me, the most profound answers to prayer or the greatest comfort from Heavenly Father or the Savior has always been through words, whether those words came from someone who was prompted to talk to me through truths in the scriptures. Whether those words came from someone who was prompted to talk to me through truths in the scriptures, through books, or through beautiful quotes from prophets and apostles, words have always filled my soul and given me comfort more than anything else. I also thought of how they offer me love through other means, like through my loved ones, through strangers, and even through pleasant coincidences and mercies. I was moved to tears when I recognized just how they show me love in so many ways, but especially in the way I receive it best. They truly know us and how to reach us personally and effectively. We too can show them love in the best ways we know how, by sharing the gospel, following them, and serving others. If you need help figuring out how they show you love, ask Heavenly Father for help in recognizing it. He will show you. Building Real Relationships This experience gave me a glimpse at how much spiritual strength I can gain by prioritizing my relationship with Heavenly Father and the Savior, and I plan to keep on utilizing these relationship tips. I now truly see my relationship with them as real, powerful, precious, and eternal. They aren't intangible, as I once thought. They are with us. They are in the details. They stand ready to shower us with strength, comfort, wisdom, guidance, and peace, especially when we make time and room for them in our lives. Try out your own methods to grow closer to them and see what happens. I can testify that as we prioritize these vital relationships and follow them, we will be able to access the Savior's healing influence, move forward with faith, and find greater confidence and joy. I know I have. Read by Amanda Saria. Young Adults Finding Spiritual Support After Joining the Church Alone by Marcus Grant I had never felt so distant from my parents, but Heavenly Father sent angels to strengthen me. For me, joining the church by myself without the reassuring testimonies of my friends and family, was challenging and lonely. Finding the church was a long-awaited answer to my prayers to better understand my Savior and live my life as He did. But I came from a devout family actively involved in a Baptist church, and my decision to become a Latter-day Saint was misunderstood and aggressively rejected. My parents wanted what they thought was best for me and believed that my leaving our family's religious upbringing would destroy my faith. Things became even more difficult when my father passed away from cancer just before I was baptized, coping with the loss of my loving father while also having to choose between God's will and my family's will was almost unbearable. I felt like I was being pushed to my limit. Heavenly Father's Angels When Jesus Christ was suffering in Gethsemane, God sent an angel to strengthen him. I believe that angel was sent to Christ's aid as an expression of Heavenly Father's unfailing love. Likewise, he sent angels to strengthen me. Among these angels were Sister Neff and Sister Smalcom, the missionaries who first taught me. They had the testimony and intellect to guide me through my intense questions, and the more of Christ's love I witnessed through them, the more I grew to love the gospel. Years after my baptism, I spoke with Sister Smalcom and thanked her for still being willing to address my questions. I also expressed that I hoped I wasn't bothering her, Marcus, she said, laughing, 
You can send me questions about the gospel for the rest of forever. It was so comforting to know that I had someone I could turn to for answers. In a way, Sister Neff and Sister Smallcomb were my mentors in the gospel, helping to guide me along my path of conversion and helping me understand what it means to be a member of the church. But they wouldn't be the only ones to guide me. Finding Other Mentors I used to love having spiritual discussions with my family, but when I joined the church, those conversations, at least for a season, became impossible to have. Spiritual discussions with my family left me drained rather than invigorated. Living the gospel without my family was not a trial I could endure by myself. Gratefully, my Heavenly Father and the faithful bishop in my young single adult ward were there to help. No matter what I discussed with my bishop, I always grew spiritually. I felt the support and love I needed. Maybe your spiritual needs aren't filled through a bishop, but an institute teacher, a mission president, a senior missionary couple, a ministering brother or sister, a friend, and so many others can be there to support you. How do we seek those mentors in our lives? One of the most important steps is doing your best to continue living the gospel, and you can trust that a perfect Heavenly Father can and will guide many Christ-like people to help you. You can also find a mentor by placing yourself in positive situations. Carrying out a ministering assignment, magnifying a calling, offering meals to missionaries and joining them for lessons, attending institute and bearing your testimony are all ways to create opportunities to develop good relationships. Trusting in Heavenly Father Throughout my journey, whenever I felt alone, Heavenly Father continued to send angels my way to comfort and strengthen me. I realized that I was never truly in a position where I didn't have support. Heavenly Father always led me to help, especially when things were tense at home. All I had to do was keep my faith in Him and keep my spiritual eyes and ears open for His guidance and blessings. I solemnly testify that the Savior's words are true. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. I lovingly encourage you to keep yourself involved in the gospel as you pray for Heavenly Father to guide you to the beneficial relationships and mentors that will help you stay on the covenant path and return to Him. The author lives in Virginia, USA. Read by Wes Nelson Young Adults More for you You can find more articles specifically for young adults in the digital version of the August Liahona in the Gospel Library at churchofjesuschrist.org or in the mobile app. This month, you'll find more articles about the power of relationships, how to increase your capacity for positive communication, and keys to building a strong foundation in marriage. Digital Articles Kindness, Something the Whole World Needs by Eric B. Murdoch, Church Magazines The Blessings of Connecting with Ancestors by Mariana Bartfai, Western Transdanubia Hungary. Four Ways to Access the Power of Positive Communication by Margaret Willis, Church Magazines How Do I Honor My Father and Mother as a Young Adult? by Emily Abel, Utah, USA Three Insights into Building a Firm Foundation in Marriage by Natalie Clay, Utah, USA 
improving my relationship with my in-laws and myself. Name withheld. Five Tips for Building a Sexually and Emotionally Intimate Relationship in Marriage by Jennifer Finlayson Fife, Utah, USA. Living in Harmony with Our Roommates by Emily Taylor and Tyler Martin, Utah, USA. Helpful Tips for Better Communication and Stronger Relationships by Molly Holt, Derek Willis-Hagee, and Jeremy Boyle, Utah, USA. YA Weekly You can also find new articles each week in YA Weekly, located in the Young Adults section of the Gospel Library at churchofjesuschrist.org or in the mobile app. From the Mission Field Three Tips for Learning the Language of the Spirit by Sebastian Hernandez Cardenas, Atlantico, Colombia Life Skills Do you want to finally reach your goals? Here are seven tips on self-discipline by Shaquille Wardley Herbert, Church Magazines. Don't miss this devotional, Simple Math for Drawing Closer to the Lord by Jennifer Kieran, Utah, USA. Read by April Johnson. Blessings of the Word of Wisdom all saints who remember to keep and do these sayings shall find wisdom and great treasures of knowledge, even hidden treasures. Doctrine and Covenants, section 89, verses 18 and 19. Substances to avoid. Illegal drugs, tobacco, coffee, tea, alcoholic drinks. Five promised blessings. Run and not be weary. Health, wisdom, treasures of knowledge, and the destroying angel shall pass us by. Risks. 10 grams, or 2.4 teaspoons of alcohol consumed per day, is associated with a 12% increase in the risk of breast cancer. Alcohol-related cardiovascular diseases caused an estimated 593 deaths globally. 18% of all deaths can be attributed to poor diet and sedentary lifestyle. Benefits 80% of cases of heart disease and stroke can be prevented by making lifestyle changes increasing levels of physical activity, and eating healthfully. People who ate eight or more servings of fruits and vegetables a day were 30% less likely to have had a heart attack or stroke. Read by Wes Nelson Digital Only Portraits of Faith The Lord Healed Me By Gregorio Gutierrez Fernandez, Santa Cruz, Bolivia since we found the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we haven't lacked for blessings. For many years, I was sick. I took medication, but my condition never improved. I could hardly walk a block without stopping to rest three or four times. I thought that maybe I was being tested for not attending a church. My wife, Sylvia, and I are very grateful to the brothers and sisters who helped bring us into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. One brother said, I am not going to tell you that you have to go to church. It is the Lord who is asking you to go. That is what we came to feel. We repented of our sins when we were introduced to the church. Repentance is extremely important. We gave up our voices and begged the Lord to forgive us of our sins and to hold on to us until we die. After we found the gospel and started attending meetings, I began to feel better. After we began attending the temple, my health improved even more. 
I was even able to play football again. The Lord healed me of my sickness. Today, my wife and I still have physical challenges, but because of our faith, the Lord blesses and strengthens us. Since we found the church, we haven't lacked for blessings. We pay our tithing, and the Lord gives us much more than we give Him. We're thankful for the home He has given us. We're thankful we have enough that we can give to the poor. We're thankful for the healthy life we've enjoyed. We are very happy. We love and are thankful for the church. We know that it is true. We know that our lives are in the hands of Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ, so we pray to Heavenly Father several times a day. We don't know when the time will arrive for us to die, when the Lord will come for us, but we are thankful He has shown us the path back to Him. Read by Rick Gines Why I Keep the Word of Wisdom When I'm Repeatedly Faced with Temptation by Nicole Narin the author lives in Utah, USA. Drinking alcohol and coffee was a daily routine of my coworkers, so I often felt like an outsider. But remembering the why behind the word of wisdom helped me stay strong. Growing up, I was often exposed to alcohol, tea, and coffee, mostly when I would spend time with my extended family. My immediate family and I are the only members of the church among my relatives, and sometimes it felt disheartening and isolating when others would look down on my beliefs. But I knew God was real, I had faith in His restored gospel and in my baptismal covenants, and I knew He wanted me to make good decisions. When I moved to London, England in my early 20s, I began working at an international bank. Everyone lived off tea and coffee to get them through the workday on our fast-moving trade floor. On my second day of work, my manager made me a cup of tea. I thanked her but explained that I don't drink tea. She quickly offered me coffee instead. I knew she was just being kind, but I was determined to keep my standards. Although I felt a little awkward, I explained in greater detail why I don't drink tea or coffee, and I was able to share some of my beliefs with her, including the word of wisdom. That was a great experience, but similar situations didn't always go as well. Facing Temptation as time went on, being surrounded by the normalcy of others drinking alcohol made it difficult for me to keep my standards. Going to pubs with clients and coworkers was a regular circumstance I would find myself in. I grew tired of having to explain myself when I turned down a drink, and sometimes I just wanted to fit in. But beyond wanting to fit in, I wanted to be an example of a disciple of Jesus Christ. So I learned a few ways to help me resist temptation. First, I prayed for strength each morning to make good decisions. Second, I often listened to conference talks or hymns on my way to work. Third, I kept my favorite scripture taped to my bathroom mirror to read each day. Yea, I know that I am nothing. As to my strength, I am weak. Therefore, I will not boast of myself, but I will boast of my God, for in His strength I can do all things. Alma chapter 26 verse 12. Fourth, I enlisted the help of my closest co-workers, asking them to support me when others would offer me just one drink. They could tell when I was feeling uncomfortable and would kindly jump in and order me a sparkling water on the rocks to help me avoid feeling awkward during these gatherings. Fifth, I worked with many other religious individuals who had similar morals. There were a few practicing Muslims whom I bonded with, and we often sat together during work functions so we could have strength in numbers. Surrounding myself with like-minded people who respected my standards helped me immensely. 
See Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 through 10. Sixth, I strove to focus on my baptismal covenant to always remember Him. See Doctrine and Covenants section 20, verses 77 and 79, which helped me feel the Spirit more abundantly. I strove to focus on my baptismal covenant to always remember Him, which helped me feel the Spirit more abundantly. I had promised to follow God and be a disciple of Christ, and seeking to always remember the Savior helped me keep an eternal and infinite perspective in the most finite moments of temptation. Remembering a Higher Purpose But what has helped me most in resisting temptation is knowing that the Lord has a higher purpose for keeping all of His commandments, including the Word of Wisdom. And I know that remaining true to the commandments has always blessed my life in so many ways. See Doctrine and Covenants section 82, verse 10. I realize that the word of wisdom is more than just going without alcohol and other strong substances. Heavenly Father gave us this commandment to help us maintain good health and practice self-mastery, to protect us from potentially crippling addictions and other consequences, and to allow us to find greater wisdom and knowledge. See Doctrine and Covenants 89. I've seen that when we demonstrate obedience to the simple things the Lord asks of us, our capacity and desire to keep all of His commandments grows, and we can learn to overcome even greater temptations and challenges. See 2 Nephi chapter 28, verse 30. I know that Heavenly Father loves me, and that through His strength and the Savior's, I can overcome peer pressure and temptation. I always remember Alma chapter 7, verses 11 through 12, which explains how the Savior understands all we face. Pains, afflictions, and even temptations. He knows how to succor His people according to their infirmities. As I have relied on Jesus Christ to help me in my weaknesses, I have felt His strength enter my life, and I more fully see that He truly does understand us. And when we are faced with temptation, He is ready to help us see the bigger picture and choose well. All we need to do is turn to Him. Read by Amanda Saria how Can I Progress on the Covenant Path While I'm Single? by Marjorie Cornelius. The author lives in northern Samar, Philippines. Regardless of what season of life we are in, moving forward means moving toward Christ. When I returned home to the Philippines after my mission, the first thing I wanted to do was meet a worthy priesthood holder whom I could marry in the temple and build a Christ-centered family with. I thought that finding him would be easy, but now it's been quite a few years since I returned home and I have yet to find someone to marry. I've been goal-driven all my life. In high school, I made goals for my future, specifically goals that would help me progress on the covenant path, the only path that will ultimately lead me and all of us back to live with Heavenly Father. I made goals to graduate from seminary and institute, to finish my studies, to get endowed in the temple, to serve a mission, to find a job in line with my degree, and to build an eternal family. I've achieved all those goals apart from one, and despite being proud of all I've accomplished, I've sometimes felt as though I've stopped progressing. A pause in progression. For years, I've spent so much time searching and praying to find someone to be with for eternity. I've always obeyed the commandments, applied the teachings of the prophets and the leaders in my life, and striven to be worthy to enter the temple. So, in frustration, I've sometimes wondered why, after trying so hard, I am still unable to reach this one goal and often feel unable to move forward on the covenant path. 
what am I lacking? One night when I was feeling extra discouraged about my marital status and seeming lack of progression, I poured out my feelings to Heavenly Father. I felt stuck, lonely, and lost. As I prayed and pondered, a clear reminder came to me. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Proverbs chapter 3 verses 5 through 6. In that moment, I realized that those paths included the covenant path. I was reminded that if I let God prevail in my life, as President Russell M. Nelson taught, he would direct me toward Christ and grant me spiritual strength, promised blessings, and eternal progression. Heading Toward Christ Elder Marvin J. Ashton of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles taught, Set your goals, but don't become frustrated because there are no obvious victories. Remind yourself that striving can be more important than arriving. For so long I had focused only on my hopes for marriage and my failure at not achieving that covenant. I had forgotten the significance of the covenants I had made and how those covenants had helped me move toward Christ. I had forgotten how beautiful my circumstances were. Right now, because I don't have children or many obligations at home, I have time to develop more skills for the future. I'm able to give a great amount of my time to serving others and ministering to those in my ward. I am able to meet more people and learn from them. I get to spend time improving my relationships with my parents and siblings. And most importantly, I still have plenty of opportunities to continue becoming more like the Savior. I've realized that if I'm still walking on the path that leads me to Jesus Christ, that I'm right where I need to be. I am moving forward on the covenant path. President Nelson also taught that wherever you are on the covenant path, I promise you that if you will sincerely and persistently do the spiritual work needed to develop the crucial spiritual skill of learning how to hear the whisperings of the Holy Ghost, you will have all the direction you will ever need in your life. I know that if I am led by the Spirit, I will be led to where He wants me to be, and therefore where I want to be. How can we keep progressing? If you are ever feeling discouraged or stagnant on the covenant path, I know how you feel. At times I have felt uncomfortable or out of place at church because I'm single. I've also heard many good-natured jokes from my family and ward about my marital status, as many of us single people have. But I have learned that no matter my circumstances, I can always keep progressing on the covenant path. I can focus on the covenants I have made and the progression and eternal promises that come from keeping those covenants. Regardless of our current circumstances, we have the opportunity to improve ourselves and to become the covenant-keeping people the Lord wants us to be. Just as the Lord counseled Emma Smith, we can lay aside the things of this world and seek for the things of a better and hold fast to our covenants with God. Doctrine and Covenants, section 25, verse 10. Married or single, children or no children, all of us can progress on the covenant path as we follow His counsel, love and serve others. Look for present blessings. Feel and express gratitude. Recognize that our perspectives are needed in building the kingdom of God. Do family history work. Magnify our callings. Strive to always be worthy to enter the temple. And help others to also stay on the path. I know that as we continue forward and recognize the significance of our covenants and the spiritual power they provide, we can prepare ourselves and the world for when the Savior comes again.
and we will be even better prepared to receive future promised blessings. Read by Amanda Saria Three Insights into Building a Firm Foundation in Marriage by Natalie Clay The author lives in Utah, USA. The challenges we face in marriage can refine our relationships. Marriage isn't always easy, but many of us, in our heart of hearts, believe that it should be. It's not difficult to understand why. Entire genres of popular books and movies teach us that the real challenge in life is finding and wooing our true love. But after we marry, it is all happily ever after, and the carefully curated social media posts of our married friends can seem to reinforce this inaccurate belief. So what do we do when we feel like our marriage is different from what we expected? As members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we are blessed to understand that mortality was designed to include challenges. We can achieve great happiness in marriage as we embrace it as an opportunity to grow, rely on Jesus Christ, and allow Him to refine us. If you are having a hard time seeing the challenges in marriage as a blessing, consider the following insights. 1. Unfulfilled expectations can be an opportunity for increased unity. Many of us expect a lot from marriage, self-fulfillment, or some magical happiness we didn't find while we were single. But if we're not careful, we can develop expectations around what we think marriage should be instead of seeking to understand what the Lord has determined marriage is. Elder David A. Bednar of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles stated, Marriage as a holy order, based on enduring covenants, duties, and lifelong sacrifice, stands in stark contrast to a modern secular concept of marriage. That worldly formulation has virtually nothing to do with losing your life in service to family or in self-sacrifice for spouse and children. Fortunately, marriages can be a work in progress. What if, instead of expecting marriage to automatically bring us more happiness, we viewed it as an opportunity to sacrifice and serve each other, for two flawed people to be more humble, to grow, and to become more Christ-like? It might feel scary to get rid of the expectation that marriage should be perpetual bliss, but as we replace this with a commitment to sacrifice for one another, as Elder Bednar described, we better align our lives with Christ. The beauty of this approach is that the Lord will strengthen our marriage and help us achieve the happiness we desired all along. 2. Disagreements can lead to a deepened relationship. When two people join their lives together, they won't always agree. Where will we live? How will we spend our money? How much time are we going to spend with the in-laws? How often will the house be cleaned? But disagreement about such matters doesn't have to be bad. In fact, learning to disagree with kindness and consideration is an excellent way to build humility and compassion. As you seek to understand your spouse's point of view, your love can deepen as you truly come to know him or her better. President Jean B. Bingham, Relief Society General President, taught how we can do that. She said, Unity is essential to the divine work we are privileged and called to do, but it doesn't just happen. It takes effort and time to really counsel together, 
to listen to one another, understand others' viewpoints, and share experiences. But the process results in more inspired decisions. When disagreements arise, conflict can often be avoided simply by keeping the larger goal in mind instead of focusing on the specific disagreement. This works for aspects of marriage both small and large. For example, maybe your spouse loads the dishwasher in a way that drives you crazy. Cups are supposed to go there, not the bowls. What's the larger goal? To have clean dishes. Do your individual methods get the dishwasher loaded? Great! Then there's no problem or reason for conflict. Let's look at a more serious marriage issue, raising children. Maybe one of you believes in a system of structured discipline, while the other believes that there should be flexibility and allowances made. How on earth can those two opinions coexist? By focusing on the larger goal. The larger goal you share is raising children who are happy, responsible, and immersed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are already aligned on the most critical things. Enjoy the journey of learning how you work together to accomplish that goal. If you embrace your own differences and approaches to life, your children, each of whom has their own unique personality, will have different ways to engage impactfully with both of you. Two heads, two worldviews, two different sets of opinions are always better than one. President Henry B. Eyring, second counselor in the First Presidency, beautifully taught us how differences allow us to become complements to each other in marriage. Quote, I have become a better person as I have loved and lived with my wife. We have been complementary beyond anything I could have imagined. Her capacity to nurture others grew in me as we became one. My capacity to plan, direct, and lead in our family grew in her as we became united in marriage. I realize now that we grew together into one, slowly lifting and shaping each other year by year as we absorbed strength from each other. It did not diminish our personal gifts. Our differences combined as if they were designed to create a better whole. Rather than dividing us, our differences bound us together. Close quote. Three. We are responsible for our individual happiness. Too often we place expectations on our spouse to make us feel confident, loved, and secure when we don't even know how to do those things for ourselves. Expecting your spouse to fill all these wants and needs can lead to disappointment and resentment in marriage. You are responsible for your individual happiness. Elder Dieter F. Uchtdorf of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles once shared this insight. The older we get, the more we look back and realize that external circumstances don't really matter or determine our happiness. We determine our happiness. Learn what you need to manage your own emotional health. Your spouse can't manage your emotions for you. He or she is there to manage their own emotions alongside you. One of the most liberating truths about marriage is knowing that our emotions are not dictated by our spouse's words or actions. In other words, we can act and not be acted upon. See 2 Nephi chapter 2, verse 26, and Doctrine and Covenants, section 58, verses 27 and 28. We have power over how we will think, and therefore 
how we will feel in our marriage. When my husband fails to take out the trash, I can choose to believe it's because he doesn't appreciate me. After all, he knows that I hate when the trash in the kitchen gets too full. But what is the result of that thought? I feel bad, and maybe it even makes me feel disconnected from him. What if instead my thought was that he simply forgot? Or even better, what if I choose to believe that his failure to take out the trash had nothing to do with his appreciation for me at all? It's more likely that the trash wasn't bothering him, and that's why he forgot to take it out. If it's bothering me, I'm the best one for the job. Changing your thoughts to change your marriage experience might not be easy work, but it is worth it, and it is certainly easier than trying to change your spouse's behavior. Marriage is a journey of growth. Marriage will always have its ups and downs, but the journey through those ups and downs can be one of joy and adventure when we remember that marriage is a stretching opportunity. This life is a time to prepare to become more like our heavenly parents, and marriage helps us to do that. President Russell M. Nelson taught, We need not be dismayed if our earnest efforts towards perfection now seem so arduous and endless. Perfection is pending. It can come in full only after the resurrection, and only through the Lord. How grateful I am for the power of the Atonement of Jesus Christ, which makes it possible for my marriage to improve and become ever happier as time goes on. I am eternally grateful for a Savior who, in spite of the weaknesses my husband and I continue to work on together, can help us become more like Him, and who can make our marriage something that can truly be called celestial. End of the article. Read by Rena Nelson. The Blessings of Connecting with Ancestors by Mariana Bartfayi My deceased grandma helped me accept the gospel of Jesus Christ and gain a testimony of family history work. Throughout my life, I believed that there must be a spiritual link between my ancestors and me. My grandparents often told stories and showed pictures of my ancestors, and I felt closer to them each time we discussed them. My family and I were not members of the church, but my grandma still taught me to pray daily, and through those prayers, I started to believe in God and in the idea that my departed ancestors were somehow living on. All Saints' Day In Hungary, we celebrate a holiday the day after Halloween called All Saints' Day. On this occasion, everyone visits cemeteries where their loved ones and ancestors are buried. We lay flowers on their graves and light candles to remember and honor them. When I was little, I felt privileged to have an even deeper connection with my ancestors, as I was actually born on All Saints' Day. It was always an extra special day for me, but I would also often complain about visiting my ancestors, because I didn't want to spend my birthday in cemeteries. I didn't see what was so unique about visiting the same graves every year especially when they belong to ancestors whom I hadn't ever met. As I've grown and gained a testimony of the gospel, however, I've come to know much more about God's plan of happiness and the sacredness of family history work. I know that everyone can and should treasure their ancestors and strive to have a deep connection with these vital members of our families. 
a desire to help my grandma. I was introduced to the church in the beginning of 2018. I loved learning from the missionaries, and when they told me about the importance of family history and temple work, I wasn't surprised. I already knew that there was something important about learning about and serving family members who had gone before. Elder Dale G. Renland of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles explained, Family history and temple work is not only for the dead, but blesses the living as well. This is far more than an encouraged hobby, because the ordinances of salvation are necessary for all of God's children. In hearing this, I was excited to keep learning about the gospel and to eventually do temple work for my ancestors and connect with them more. On November 1, 2018, my family and I visited my grandma's memorial. I had known her well all my life, and I missed her since she had passed away. I was still learning about the church at the time, and I was pretty positive that my grandma would have disagreed with and discouraged my interest in the church if she were alive. She had been very traditional in her religion. So I was surprised when, while standing in front of her grave and praying for her, I got the distinct impression that she already knew the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I felt that she was proud of me because I had the opportunity to live my life according to the Savior's example. I was stunned. The missionaries had recently taught me that those who are on the other side of the veil have opportunities to learn about the gospel if they didn't have a chance to learn about it on earth. See Doctrine and Covenants, section 138, verses 22 through 24. Somehow, I knew my grandma had been taught these truths and was ready to accept the gospel. I knew she needed my help to get her temple work done, and to do that work, I needed to get baptized myself. I had been contemplating if I truly wanted to become a member of the Church of Jesus Christ for a while, and it was this experience at my grandma's grave that led me to finally set up a baptismal date with the missionaries. A Miraculous Temple Trip Months later, the young single adults in my area were planning a trip to visit the Freiburg, Germany Temple in the next year. We were challenged to prepare our own family names beforehand to bring with us. I visited many family members and a priest in a village where my ancestors had lived to gather information and records. I also prayed for guidance to help me find other members of my family who needed their work done. In the end, I collected and prepared about 40 family names to be baptized during my first temple trip. But there was one ancestor in particular that I was truly excited about. On the day we visited the temple, one of my dearest friends, who eventually became my husband, grabbed my hand and led me into the baptismal font to complete my grandma's baptism. And when he lowered me into the water and raised me back up, I was struck by the warmest feeling from the Holy Ghost. I knew immediately that my grandma was with me and that she was grateful to finally become a member of the church. I was grateful to her for helping me truly realize just how much the work we do in temples matters to our ancestors. We need each other. I am so grateful for this experience with my grandma because it confirmed to me what I had suspected all my life that our ancestors and loved ones who have passed away do live on and that we can deepen our connections with them. We can draw strength 
love, and so many other blessings from our ancestors as we learn about them, practice gratitude for them, and perform sacred ordinances for them in the temple. When inviting members of the church to increase their time doing family history work, Elder David A. Bednar of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles promised, As you respond in faith to this invitation, your heart shall turn to the fathers. Your love and gratitude for your ancestors will increase. Your testimony of and conversion to the Savior will become deep and abiding. And I promise you will be protected against the intensifying influence of the adversary. I am eternally grateful for my sweet grandma. I can't wait for the day when we are reunited and I can tell her how she helped me fully embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. I know that as we strive to connect with our ancestors and strengthen our relationships with them, we can deepen our faith and come closer to Christ. They need us. They are waiting for us. And we need them too. See Doctrine and Covenants, section 128, verse 18. Mariana Bartfai lives in western Transdanubia, Hungary, and is a university student. She is also a wife and devoted disciple of Jesus Christ. End of the article. Read by Rena Nelson. Kindness. Something the Whole World Needs. By Eric B. Murdoch, Church Magazines. By being kind, we can help in our own small way to change the world for the better. When it came time to bless my daughter, Amelia, there was so much I wanted to include in her blessing. As I pondered beforehand about what to say, I felt that I should bless her to grow up healthy and strong. I also felt inspired to bless her that her life would be centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. As I stood in the circle and sacrament meeting and began to bless my little daughter, I shared all these things and other spiritual impressions. Then suddenly, I felt prompted to add something. I was surprised by how strongly this prompting came to me. With Amelia in my arms, I said, At times, people will be unkind to you, but I bless you that you will follow the Savior's example and always be kind. I have thought a lot about this part of Amelia's blessing since then. I've realized that kindness isn't something I wish only for my daughter. Kindness is something the whole world needs. It often seems that harshness and thoughtlessness are everywhere. But here are a few ways we can make the world around us a little kinder. 1. Be kind to others, even when you don't agree with them. Look at a recent news feed, and it won't take long for you to see people being unkind to one another. Some regard those with a different point of view as naive, mistaken, or even evil. They act like there's no room for differing opinions, and respecting other perspectives is often seen as weakness. But it doesn't have to be that way. President Alan H. Oakes, first counselor in the first presidency, said, Followers of Christ should be examples of civility. We should love all people, be good listeners, and show concern for their sincere beliefs. Though we may disagree, we should not be disagreeable. Being kind, regardless of our opinions, can help us look for the best in one another and feel more connected. 2. Focus on kindness at home. President M. Russell Ballard, acting president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, once said, Like the small flecks of gold that accumulate over time into a large treasure, our small and simple acts of kindness and service will accumulate into a life filled with love for Heavenly Father, 
devotion to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and a sense of peace and joy each time we reach out to one another. A home filled with kindness is a place of love, compassion, and warmth. During the challenges of life, kindness also brings families feelings of reassurance, understanding, and caring. It improves family relationships and is essential if we want to create a peaceful and loving home. 3. Be patient with others and yourself when mistakes are made. When those around us do things that upset us, we can still choose to be patient with and kind to them, in the same way we would like them to treat us. We can also choose to be kind when those we love and care about turn away from the things that our Heavenly Father would have us do. Elder Dieter F. Uchtdorf of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles said, Our duty is to love God and love our neighbors. If we do, God will work miracles through us to bless His precious children. We also need to be kind to ourselves. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles said, As children of God, we should not demean or vilify ourselves, as if beating up on ourselves is somehow going to make us the person God wants us to become. Everyone deserves patience and kindness, and that includes you. 4. When others are unkind, be kind anyway. At times people will treat us with unkindness. When that happens, as hard as it may be, we need to strive to be kind anyway. The Savior taught, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. This doesn't mean we allow others to walk all over us like a doormat. It's always important to maintain healthy boundaries, but we should try to treat each person as a child of Heavenly Father, and we should remember that everyone has challenges, many that we can't see. By reaching out in kindness and serving those who are unkind, you may help them change. But even if they don't, showing kindness will make a difference for you. Choosing to be kind frees you from dwelling on the unkindness of others. It allows you to find ways to help those around you and experience happiness along the way. Follow the Savior's way. There are many ways to learn to be kinder, but the best way is to look to the Savior and follow His example. He showed kindness in all that He said and did. If we look outside ourselves and act in kindness, even toward those who are unkind, we can help, in our own small way, to change the world for the better. As we emulate the Savior and turn our hearts outward, we will find opportunities to reach out to people who need it. And in serving others, we will draw closer to the Savior and increase in love and kindness even more. Elder Gary E. Stevenson of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles said, As we look through a gospel lens, we recognize that we too are under the watch care of a compassionate caregiver who extends himself in kindness and a nurturing spirit. So I invite you, along with Amelia, to spread a little kindness and make a difference in someone's day. As President Gordon B. Hinckley once said, Miracles can happen and will happen when there is kindness, respect, and love. Eric B. Murdoch is an editor and writer with the For the Strength of Youth magazine. He loves to get outside whenever he can and enjoys hiking, camping, and kayaking, but most of all, he enjoys the time he spends with his wife and two children. Eric is grateful for his testimony of Jesus Christ and to know that turning to the Savior is the answer to all of life's challenges. Read by Wes Nelson 
Four Ways to Access the Power of Positive Communication by Margaret Willis, Church Magazines. It's about more than just smiling or saying nice things. It's about helping others feel God's love. While casual acquaintances often believe me to be an upbeat person, I've never thought of myself as a beaming ray of sunshine. In fact, there's a rather large reminder of my sometimes not-so-cheery disposition that hangs on my parents' living room wall. One summer, when I was a child, my grandparents came to visit, and we took advantage of the opportunity to schedule some family photos. I was fully prepared in my pink gingham dress and matching brimmed hat, but things took a sour turn when I wasn't given a stool like the ones that several family members were sitting on. Frustrated, I frowned my biggest frown for the entire session, tainting what could have been a pleasant experience with my family and spawning decades of jokes about the grumpy dress. Although I can laugh about it now, that family portrait is a constant reminder to me of the power of positivity. Being positive obviously makes life more enjoyable, because who finds genuine pleasure in being angry all the time? Not to mention, positivity has long been linked to various health benefits like reduced stress, lower risk of heart disease, and even a longer life. But positivity doesn't affect just us as individuals. Our positivity, or lack of it, can impact each person we interact with. We've been commanded to be of good cheer, and as we do so in our communications, we ourselves and those around us can more abundantly feel the love of our Heavenly Father and Savior. Here are a few ways we can tap into the power of positive communication. First, follow the Savior's pattern of communication. For the ultimate example of positive communication, we can look to the Savior, who demonstrated His love for others by interacting with kindness, compassion, and understanding. Elder L. Lionel Kendrick, an Emeritus General Authority 70, taught, Christ-like communications are expressions of affection and not anger, truth and not fabrication, compassion and not contention, respect and not ridicule, counsel and not criticism, correction and not condemnation. They are spoken with clarity and not with confusion. They may be tender or they may be tough, but they must always be tempered. Clearly, how we say something is just as important as what we say. A lesson I learned as a piano student. Having studied the piano for most of my life, I've experienced many teaching styles. Though it could be discouraging to be given an endless list of musical passages to perfect, I was fortunate to have teachers who were exceptional at offering correction in a motivating and compassionate manner, and I learned about the immense power of a kindly spoken word. Second, strive to have a bright outlook. Whether we realize it or not, our attitude can impact how we communicate with others and many other aspects of our lives. President Thomas S. Monson said, So much in life depends on our attitude. The way we choose to see things and respond to others makes all the difference. To do the best we can and then to choose to be happy about our circumstances, whatever they may be, can bring peace and contentment. One way to cultivate a positive attitude is to invite the Spirit into our lives. We can do this by replacing doubt and fear with faith, embracing the gift of repentance, actively striving to strengthen our testimonies, and seeking to recognize the Lord's hand in our lives. I've also found that as I schedule and follow through on time for studying the Scriptures, I feel more positive throughout the day. 
All these things help us feel the Holy Ghost more abundantly, leading to greater feelings of hope. Of course, being positive doesn't mean suppressing all negative emotions either. I've sometimes fallen into the trap of thinking that I lack faith if I express concerns or feelings of sadness. But as Sister Sharon Eubank, first counselor in the Relief Society General Presidency, explained, being happy doesn't mean to slap a plastic smile on your face no matter what is going on, but it does mean keeping the laws of God and building and lifting others. When we build, when we lift the burden of others, it blesses our lives in ways our trials cannot take away. While we will all experience negative emotions throughout life, we can find greater happiness as we avoid dwelling on our sorrows and seek to lift others. Third, consider the relationship ratio. Optimism might not be measurable, but certain benchmarks can help us gauge just how positive we are in our interactions. For decades, psychologist John Gottman has studied what makes a healthy relationship. After observing thousands of couples, he determined a formula that can help predict whether couples will stay together or separate in the coming years with over 90% accuracy. His major discovery? During moments of conflict, happy couples typically follow a ratio of at least five positive interactions for every one negative interaction. Positive interactions might include offering a compliment, empathizing, and validating the other person's perspective, while negative interactions can include eye-rolling, becoming defensive or dismissive, and being critical. Although Gottman's research focuses on romantic couples, his conclusions can be applied to all types of relationships and highlight the detrimental effects of negativity. The scriptures teach us, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. We may not always see eye to eye with one another, but we can disagree without being disagreeable. And as we seek to be uplifting, even in the face of conflict, we can lighten our burdens and make room for greater joy. Fourth, be an example of the believers. I now smile for family photos, even if I have to stand, and I've begun to understand how my own attitude can impact those around me, for better or for worse. While I'm far from perfect, I try to make a special effort to be engaged when I'm in a conversation with someone, to express my appreciation for my husband and other loved ones, and to ultimately be an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12 It's the combination of these little things, a listening ear, a positive affirmation, a sincere apology, that often has the biggest impact. These little things, which help us emulate our Savior, allow us to share God's love. And in sharing His love, we ourselves will feel it too. Tips for being a positive communicator Practice active listening. Avoid interrupting and restate your understanding of what has been said to make sure you've correctly understood the message. Be attentive. Give the speaker your full attention. Try to think about what the speaker is saying in that moment not what you're going to say next, and eliminate distractions. Use I statements. When you're upset, try offering personal statements, I feel sad when I, rather than blaming the other person for how you feel. It makes me sad when you. Look for good in one another. As you look for the qualities that you admire in another person, 
you'll be less likely to criticize or focus on flaws. Avoid defensiveness. When you're criticized or blamed for something, it can be easy to lash out in frustration or embarrassment. Owning up to mistakes and offering a sincere apology can help soothe hurt feelings. Offer genuine encouragement. Elder Dieter F. Uchtdorf of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles taught, True words of encouragement require only a loving and caring heart, but may have an eternal impact on the life of those around you. Recognize differences. People communicate in varying ways. Strive to identify these differences so you can communicate in a way that's effective for both parties. Margaret Willis is an editor for the Liahona and YA Weekly. Born in Chiba, Japan, and raised in Wisconsin, USA, she loves Chopin etudes, cooking shows, and extremely dark chocolate. She is grateful for the gospel of Jesus Christ and the peace that it brings. Read by Amanda Saria. Simple Math for Drawing Closer to the Lord by Jennifer Kieran From an address given to students at Ensign College in Salt Lake City, Utah, USA, on December 1st, 2020. Read the full text at ensign.edu. After the past year, with all its ups and downs and unexpected turns, it would be wise for us to evaluate if we are learning the lessons we should and could from this pandemic and other recent events. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles posted this thought as he reflected on what he is learning through this very unusual time. I hope when things go back to normal, whatever normal is going to be, that I don't forget the feelings and experiences I've had during these months of reflection and solitude. We would be foolish to miss out on this sacred opportunity to search our souls, do a little repenting, and look for how we can be better and kinder. 1. With that as a foundational thought, let's have a little math lesson. I love math with all its logic and precision and predictability, but we'll keep it simple, because simple math is all I can do these days. We are going to add, subtract, multiply, and divide. Add. With all the wild noise that surrounds us, with all the divergent voices clamoring for our attention and loyalty on our phones, on our screens, and even inside our homes, we need to add a holy place to our lives. Think about where you live. Picture it in your mind. Are you in an apartment? Living at home with family? In a basement? With or without roommates? Where do you go for stillness, for prayer, for connecting with God? And is it working? Whatever your living situation, you can add a holy place to it a space where you find stillness in order to hear the voice of God, to hear Him as our prophet has counseled us to do. 2. To commune and find guidance and direction for your life. Where in your living space can you add a holy place? Try to find a specific spot or a furnishing that can be your holy place. Maybe it's your bedroom quilt once your roommate leaves for the day, or a certain chair by the heating vent where the hot air comes out during the winter months. 
Maybe it's a fluffy rug you find online and put beside your bed to kneel on. This holy place can become a sanctuary for you. For some reason, and I speak from personal experience, strength and comfort can come to you from knowing that your quilt, your chair, your fluffy rug, whatever, represents your deliberate holy place and is where holy things happen. Turn off the noise. Create stillness very deliberately in order to hear him. Jesus taught, For all flesh is in mine hands. Be still and know that I am God. Doctrine and Covenants, section 101, verse 16. President Russell M. Nelson has said, I invite you to make your apartment, your dorm, your home, or your room a holy place where you can safely retreat from the dark distractions of the world. 3. Subtract Next comes subtraction. Think about how you spend the 24 hours you are given every day. Many of those hours are spent sleeping, probably not as many as you'd like, and many of those hours are spent in class and studying. Many hours are spent working and earning money to live. The hours or minutes that are left to you after your various commitments to school, work, and family, you might call your disposable time. This is the time over which you have full decision-making power. How do you decide to spend that time? Make a mental list of how you have spent your disposable time over the last few days. Then think about what needs to be subtracted from what you do during that disposable time. Are there pastimes or media choices or time wasters that would be better either dropped completely or at least limited? What needs to be subtracted from your life? That could be a question for you to ponder and ask Heavenly Father about when you are in that holy place you are going to add. Let's subtract anything from our lives, especially from our disposable time, that offends the Spirit, whether that be actual activities or behaviors or habits, or whether it's thoughts or attitudes, or the language we sometimes use. If it offends the Spirit, subtract it. Let it go. Remove it from your life and add more holy. Multiply. Let's move on to multiplication. What do we want to multiply in our lives? What in your life would you like more of? And I mean a lot more of. Probably the first thing that came to your mind was money. Wouldn't that be nice to multiply the balance in your bank account or the paycheck you receive, even if just by two or three? But really think, what would you like to multiply in your life? What about love and loving relationships? What about feelings of peace and joy? What about forgiveness and healing? Don't we all want a lot more of these things? We can put all of this under the heading of blessings. Don't we just want to multiply our blessings, all the good things in our lives? We believe in a God of abundance a God of eternal and infinite capacity and resources, love, wisdom, and goodness. 
He wants nothing more than to mercifully multiply our blessings, but we must draw near to Him through a lifestyle of repentance and keeping His commandments. As we multiply our active pursuit of light, service, and the attributes of Jesus Christ in our life, as we multiply our quest for repentance and obedience, our Father then miraculously multiplies our blessings. It's a simple equation. And these blessings are multiplied again as we share our joy and faith and peace with others. We help to multiply their blessings and the goodness in their life when we give of our love and our desire to do good, lift others, and relieve suffering. All of this is multiplied yet again when we join forces with others whose goals are the same as our own, and on and on the multiplication of blessings goes. Divide. Now for division. Hang on a minute. Do we want division in our lives? Jesus taught us clearly that if we are not one, if we are not unified, we are not his. He wants us to be one with each other, to create powerful unity out of our beautiful diversity so that we can be one with him. In order to achieve this kind of unity and oneness, yes, there are some things we must divide ourselves from. Jesus taught, He that hath the spirit of contention is not of me, but is of the devil, and he stirreth up the hearts of men to contend with anger with one another. 3 Nephi chapter 11, verse 29 So we must divide ourselves from contention, from being stirred up to anger against those around us. Jesus also taught, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them who despitefully use you and persecute you. 3 Nephi chapter 12, verse 44 to even begin to follow that Christ-like commandment, we have to divide ourselves from our pride, from our selfishness, from our prejudice, from any animosity toward groups different from us, and specifically from any form of racism. I'm sure we can all remember what it felt like to hear President Nelson say, I grieve that our black brothers and sisters the world over are enduring the pains of racism and prejudice. Today I call upon our members everywhere to lead out in abandoning attitudes and actions of prejudice. 4. And so we must divide ourselves from contention, pride, and racism. Inverse There's one more math operation I want to explore. The inverse. If you take the number 5, for example, which is really 5 over 1, the inverse is 1 over 5. Do you remember that? It's sort of like the opposite. You simply flip the number. So, when you are facing adversity, which is just about all the time in one form or another, apply the inverse and flip it on its head. Instead of asking, why me? Why is this difficult thing happening to me? Try asking, why not me? What can I learn from this? What can I change? How can I grow through faith in Jesus Christ? There's such power in this. When you are dealing with an issue that is causing you to doubt your faith, 
apply the inverse. By all means, fully explore the questions you have, but flip cynicism on its head by approaching your questions from a place of faith, from an eternal perspective, from an acknowledgement that God's ways are higher than your ways, and His thoughts are higher than your thoughts, or anyone else's thoughts for that matter. See Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. You will certainly be able to identify other ways you could apply the inverse and flip a less faithful perspective on its head. Let God Prevail We all remember President Nelson's invitation to let God prevail in our lives. He asked a series of questions. Are you willing to let God prevail in your life? Are you willing to let God be the most important influence in your life? Will you allow His words, His commandments, and His covenants to influence what you do each day? Will you allow His voice to take priority over any other? Are you willing to let whatever He needs you to do take precedence over every other ambition? Are you willing to have your will swallowed up in His? 5. Letting God prevail in our lives is applying the inverse when we confront adversity and uncertainty and decidedly turning them on their heads. So, to review, this math lesson has taught us to add a holy place and hear Him, subtract anything that offends the Spirit, multiply our blessings by drawing near to the Lord through repentance and obedience, divide ourselves from contention, pride, selfishness, prejudice, and racism, and apply the inverse and let God prevail. Jesus, the master mathematician, is our Savior and King. His perfect love for you is real, life-changing, and life-saving. Let Him prevail in your life, and you will find unspeakable joy. Read by Kristen Hawkins